Okay, good evening everyone. Thank you for joining. We are about to begin a continuation of last week's Thursday night class. Before I begin, I'd like to dedicate this class to Mrs. Gittim Units, who it's her birthday today. Shem should bench her with abundant and beyond abundant blessings in everything, material and the spiritual. A good and healthy, successful year and blessings that are pouring and the vessels to receive them and good health and nachas from the children only only the best thank you so much and you merit to greet Mashiach Tzidkenu before your next birthday way before your next birthday maybe even tonight Bezra session okay Chaim Okay, here we are. So we are continuing the discourse we learned last week. And we are holding in Lukuti Torah, Shir Hashirim, Daf Yud Beis. And we are holding in Perek Gimel. This was such a fascinating discourse. It like opened up for, for me as we were learning. And let's hope the same thing will happen as we continue learning the rest of the discourse. The verse says in Shir Hashirim, in Songs, in Chapter 1, I think verse uh, in chapter one of Song and Songs, which exact uh, verse we will tell you in a minute over here. Which Pasuk is it? Uh, oh. ah. It doesn't even say which Pasuk it is. Maybe hold on, let's go back a second. There's another Maimalus Usasi right before that. This one doesn't either say. Ugh. Okay, I don't have a Shira Shirim in front of me, but it's uh, in the first chapter. You can look it up. And anyways, it says over there that Hashem says to his beloved bride, he says, I am so in love with you. You're so beautiful. You're so wonderful. You're so attractive to me. And then he says to the to the horses and the chariots of Paro, I have compared you my 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 love. That's the simple meaning is my love. But... As we learned last week, it uses the term reyasi. Reyasi also means my provider. Because uh, Hashem's bride, which is Israel, the Jewish people, are called not only God's wife, but they're also called, as the Midrash says, my provider. To understand what does that mean? Because the sages say that uh, that, uh, that uh, the Jewish people are the ones, the Jewish souls of the people are the ones that bring God sustenance. Yisrael mefarnesim lavim shebishmaim. The Jew, the, the the Israel is the one that brings for Hashem his parnasa, his livelihood, which is an astounding state statement. God is the one who provides sustenance to everybody. What does it mean? We bring God his sustenance. And second question that he asked is, what what's the comparison to the to the to the horses and the chariot of Paro? What kind of what in the world? Female horses of the chariot of Paro? You are compared. What is that? So, on a simple level, it's because the horses and the, the horses were dressed beautifully. They used to adorn the horses with all kinds of ornaments. So Hashem says to Israel, "You are also splendid in my eye." And, and actually, the horses were splendid when you looked at them. It was a pleasure to look because horses, in general, could be a very good-looking animals. And horses that are in Egypt, Egypt is the capital of horses. 
and those that were cho- chosen for the for, for Pharaoh's private the chariots and his own personal stable, and these horses, especially when they went out in a parade, they would look magnificent. Hashem says, "You're in my eyes so beautiful." But it's still a weird thing to compare your bride to to a horse and a chariot to Pharaoh. You know, like you know, come on. I know Hashem is very romantic, but that's like a little bit, I think, overkill. <laughs> it's a weird comparison. That's why we need to have some some deeper understanding. So, if you want to really get the gist of all of this, listen to last week's class. It was a three-hour class. Hopefully, this week's will be quite a bit shorter. But in any case, uh, we'll be discussing the ideas over here. Just to make it brief, just a short little synopsis so you can all join along and catch catch on board. And even those who were on the class last week, even the teacher and myself as I was teaching this, I myself, uh, even though I taught it for three hours, I needed a good refresher today. I had to relearn the whole discourse again, even though I taught it last week. Because that's what happens. The brain gets occupied with a bunch of other stuff. And even the most phenomenal things that you've understood and appreciated and enjoyed and were thrilled by, uh, by now it got a little foggy. So you need to like re, 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 regenerate and reawaken what we learned. So briefly, we learned as follows. We learned that um, there is heaven and earth. There is a spiritual couple. And everything in the world is set up in a system of man and woman. Heaven is the man and the woman is the earth. And between God and Israel, Hashem is the man and we are the we are the earth. His bride is called earth. The Shekhinah is called earth. The Shekhinah is the root of all souls. The Shekhinah is the root of all creation. But the inner dimension of the Shekhinah is the root of the souls. And that's called earth. Female, the wife, the recipient. Just like the earth is the recipient from the heaven. Because the heaven gives the rain. And the earth gives the fruit. So to a female male, the man gives the rain. The woman gives the child. So there is a a a a a, uh, a transmission of husband and wife. Um, so in the we learned in the beginning of the discourse that in the, that uh, within this this heaven and earth um, coupling that there is there is also um, the male and female in the Torah. In the Torah itself, there is the male part of the Torah, female part of the Torah. Now, regarding the, the, the two parts of the Torah, of male and female, um, which are the, the written Torah and the oral Torah, um, he refers to them as sun and moon, not so much as heaven and earth, because that's another couple that we have in the sky, the sun and the moon. And regarding the sun, it says, because the sun shines its light to the moon, and the moon reflects the sun. So the same is the more godly side of the Torah, which is the, the oral Torah, has all the heavenly light, all the divine divine concepts, and is directly from God's mouth. And then it gets passed on to the oral Torah, which dissects it and details it into myriads and myriads and myriads of details and sub-details and sub-sub-details until the Torah comes out with all of its nuances fully developed and fully practicable. Because from the Torah itself, you can't practice the Torah. Only through the from the written Torah, you can't practice the Torah. Only from Torah Shabbat. That's sun and moon. Now, there's a verse that says, When the verse, chapter 19, Psalm 19 in, the, in the Psalms, in Tehillim, it says, 
that the 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 sun is like a a, a groom that goes out from his chuppah. Because earlier than that, it's talking about the sun. Because it starts off to speaking about the heaven. Starts off to talk about the sky and the heaven. And in the heaven, it says, that the heavens are a ohel, they're a tent for the sun. The sun is like embedded in the heavens. And then the verse continues, It is like a groom that's coming out of his chuppah. So the sun is then compared to a groom. So So what does this mean? What does it mean, the sun that's coming out of the chuppah? So, in what sense is it going out of a chuppah? What does it mean? And again, when we're saying the sun, it's referring to God as the groom and we the bride. Okay, that's one element of it. And also, as that that expresses itself in the Torah, which Torah is also, as we spoke, it's the divine element in Torah itself, men and women. So regarding Torah, it's the Torah emanating from pre-Torah. Now, there's no such a thing as pre-Torah. When we say pre-Torah, we mean the Torah as it is in its essence before it comes down into words. You know, we read the Torah. The Torah is already identifiable letters that are written on a scroll. But we understand that the Torah, just like any poetry or any writing that someone writes, those writings were embedded deep, deep, deep in the heart and soul of the poet and of the writer before he put it, he or she put it out. And, 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 and exactly at that point, if you really go deep, it wasn't even these words. It was the, the, the experiences and the, the, the makeup of the soul of the writer or the poet that will eventually generate these, these, these ideas and these thoughts and this type of poetry. Or this kind of song, you know, uh, from, from a person, a person composes songs or a person is a writer of music or writer of whatever it is. Um, it usually is a reflection of who they are and what they are at their very core. And that's what ends up being expressed. So when we say there is the Torah before it's written, before it emanates as Torah, by, by Sinai, the Torah came out in, a, in, in with words that we can read. Before that, they were of God, part of God. And as we're learning over here, they were rooted at a very, very, very core, 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 high element of God's inner, inner pleasure and inner delight. That is infinitely beyond creation. It's a very big mistake to think that the Torah is here to fix the world. Now, it would be a very big mistake to say the Torah does not fix the world. Of course, the Torah repairs and fix the world. Through the Torah, we achieve the tikkun olam, the, the fixing of the world, and we make the world ready for the messianic age. But it is also a terrible mistake to say that the Torah is all about fixing the world. Quite on the contrary, the world was created to allow the Torah to express itself. The Torah goes way beyond creation. And Torah is utterly godly. It's something very deep in God. And then it emanated. So the emanation of the Torah as a Torah the written Torah, even before, this is another stage. This is what we learned in the early discourse in the beginning. This whole year we're learning this concept of Torah. It's very interesting. It's not by choice that I'm choosing this, that every discourse that we're learning is following the theme of the couple in Torah. Because remember, we learned this long discourse. We spent five weeks learning Torah, Tziva, Lano, Moshe. Over there we discussed how the Torah descends twice. First into the, into the letters, and then from the letters into the oral Torah words. So, 
Kechasan, when we say the sun goes out of its, the, 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 the sun is like a chuppah. I'm sorry, it's like a, it's a groom emerging from his, emerging from the chuppah, from the canopy. Chuppah is the canopy, the bridal canopy. Um, it's referring to the Torah emerging into a readable document from it being utterly unknown and utterly one with its infinite, with its infinite source, which is God Almighty himself. And the, the Torah comes out, it's like the sun. But where is it going? That's what is very important. But the verse says that the, the, the sun comes out from its from its from its uh chuppah, from its uh, what do we call it, from its uh, uh, uh bridal canopy. And where is it going? Yaritz Kigibar, it is delighted, it is full of energy and joy and happiness as it comes out. The Torah issues forth, gushes forth with enormous joy. And where is it running? Loritz, and it's running. The Torah is racing. You have this, it's like this groom bursting out of his canopy and he's racing with incredible passion and fire. Where is he running? Orach, he's running on the road. Where is he going? So where he's really going is he's running to his bride. As we're going to see today. What does that mean? The Torah Shebiksav, the written Torah, is racing with all of its energy to be interpreted and to be translated into the feminine Torah that will, in other words, the energy, the concepts, which till now were lost inside this chuppah, this divine canopy, this very, very high state, unknowable state. Now it's emerging outward to be already identifiable as letters. But letters that are utterly, even when they're letters, they're utterly divine. Remember we spoke that there's four letters in, in earlier classes. There are four, le- four levels in letters. There are letters that are, uh, they, there is the song, the, the song, and then there are the crowns of the letters, and then there are the pronunciations, the vowels, and finally they come down into a form of a letter. It's a word. And in each one we learned there's 600,000 interpretations, remember? So this is, this is still... Like on the level, the level of letters, it's still utterly a divine Torah. It's a godly Torah. It's the groom. It didn't come into the world yet. For it to come into the world, to come into our reality, it has to be translated into a more human code, into a, and that is that it, it travels to the feminine world, to the kala, to the mouth of Hashem, so to speak, to the, to the, to the, to the world of speech. And over there, these ideas are then articulated into, into spoken word, which are, which is Torah Shabbat, which is the oral law. Now, um, this is the, this is this 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 thing. Oh, hold on, no, no. Now, just like we see it in Torah, now let's get a step back a second. The Torah is the inner inner life force of creation. So this, in the same way that this manifests regarding the Torah, it also it also happens regarding in general. Hashem is emerging to be. To be to be uh, to be the creator of the creation. So again, this whole mimer is a little you have to, to realize. We're talking about first this emergence of Torah to to meet and within Torah, a man and a woman. And the whole theme of the mimer is that the woman is the one that stimulates the man to come out. We're going to get to that in a minute. I didn't get to that part yet. So similar to that, on a on a grandiose. Uh, 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 no, not on a grand. On a more external level, the innermost is the is the coupling of the Torah itself, which is the inner the inner the inner soul of creation. 
But then on the external level, there is in general, there is the creation, which is all coming from the words that the Shekhinah speaks to create the world. It is a product of earth. That's called earth. And then there is God, where God emerges to be the creator of the creation. And God emerging to be the creator of the creation is called heaven. So when we say in the beginning God created heaven and earth, it doesn't just mean he created the heaven, the physical heaven and the physical earth, or even the spiritual heaven, but it means first the divine heaven. What does that mean? Let's, let's explain that in a moment. It means as follows. God is infinitely beyond being a creator. Because a creator is already, God is taking on a specific role. He's a creator of the creation, especially if we give that creator more of a more of a personality, which we do find in the Torah. The Torah refers to God as a as a, as a loving parent, as a loving father, as an enlightened teacher. We have in the and sometimes Torah refers to God as an enlightened teacher, as a master teacher. Other times, God is compared to a benevolent kind king. Sometimes he's even appearing as a warrior. Hashem Ishmochama, God is, in a few weeks we're going to read it in the in the Song of the Sea, God is a, a man of war. So we have all these personalities where God is assuming to, in, in his relationship with the world. And of course these are metaphoric, they're not physical, but the very fact that we're using a metaphor, we are describing something means that on some level, on some way, there, these, this is really true. This really exists. That he is a king. He's a father. He's a sometimes he's a, a loving husband. Same idea. But he takes on a certain form. That form is is considered a tremendous descent for God, because the truth of his existence is that he is unformed and unspecified. Simple with other simplicity, which means any form we are going to ascribe to God or subscribe to God is a voluntary choice where he chooses to emanate himself into such a form. It's almost like he shrinks himself to be God, to be the creator. There is God as he is in his unshrunken state, big, endless, beyond, and then there is a def- he defines himself into certain definitions, and then he creates the world. With after he has lowered himself down into those definitions, and that is connected to the verse that says "Olam Chesed Yibane," that to create the world, Olam is the world. Chesed Yibane, we have to first structure God as a kind being. In other words, God creates the world out of His kindness. But how does God get kindness? That's a definition. You say someone is generous and someone is kind. That's a definition. So God first makes himself into a kind being. So he, he, he kind of he formulates himself into kindness. But over here it says that he does that. And, and again, and when God formulates himself into kindness. And in Kabbalistic terminology, that means that God emanates his sephirot, his attributes. He is essentially above and beyond all attributes. And Hashem emanates and projects himself into various different attributes. 
those attributes, then the, he is already, then he's related to the creation. Now those attributes are really seven attributes, but the predominant one of those attributes is his kindness. Kindness is the most powerful of, that's why it's, kindness is associated with the right side. The right is by most people, the right is stronger than the left. You do have lefties, but generally the right is most of the time stronger than the left. So the right, by God, the way God set up the system is by him as well. The right, which is kindness. So kindness is the primary force. When we speak about emanating, that Hashem emanates himself into kindness, it, the verse says that this has to happen constantly. Oilam chesed yibaneh. Okay? Which means chesed needs to be, yibaneh means it should be built, but it should be built con- perpetually, continuously. Continuously we have to build the kindness. And the reason for that is because naturally his energy dissolves back into the infinite and the unknowable, into the beyond description. That's the nature of the energy. It's like fire. Fire is always ascending upward. This week week we learned in the Torah about Moshe and the burning bush. So you see that God appears to him in fire. Many times you have God appearing as fire. And the notion that God is trying to convey is this idea that just like fire is always rising upward. And unless you have something anchoring it down, it disappears and it kind of will, you know, go back into the spiritual element of fire. The same is also God naturally, if you can say, if there's any nature to that, is that the light escapes its definitions, which we might call to God, we will call it physical trappings, and it re 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 it it, it re 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 rejoins the infinite, indescriptive, boundless light, what we call the or in self, the infinite. So for Hashem to be the master of the world, the creator of the world, he first needs to create himself as a creator, and then he creates the world. And that's called heaven. Heaven is the making of God as being the creator, and then he channels, once he is in a certain way, then the recipients are the actual creation, and the innermost of that creation is the Shekhinah, which is the soul of creation. She's the feminine side. She's receiving of his light. There's Shamayim and there's Aretz. Heaven is him, him as a defined being, primarily a kind being, chesed yibane, and then, but how does this happen? How does an infinite being land suddenly with attributes? If attributes are such a constriction and a limitation to him, how does he suddenly land as a being, find himself down as a God creator with a certain with a certain personality and character. And the answer to that is that um, initially it came completely of his own. Like the verse says, Ki amarti, Hashem says, because I said, Oilam, I myself said, Chesed Yibane. When I said, when I sh- when, and, and according to this interpretation, we're soon going to see a, a, a complete different interpretation, but first I want you to bear in mind this interpretation. Ki amarti, when I said, because there was no one over there to generate existence and creation, because nothing existed but God's infinity. And when Hashem, for whatever whatever it is, decided that he wants to create, he therefore built himself, structured himself first as being a creator, and then he designed the worlds. And then he then, from him, 
being within this certain state, he's compassionate, he's giving, and so on and so forth, the energy flow flows into the creation. Fine. That's the that happened on its own. However, that's only the beginning. After the beginning, the rest of creation and the rest of existence, God has um, given over that responsibility and that and that enormous um, the merit and the, this enormous enormous power. God gave it over to His bride. In other words, He said, "You gonna coax me into doing this? You gonna?" You're going to will me into the will to create. First to create myself and then to create you. <laughs> so it's almost like he gives us enough existence, but once he creates us, then he th- then we're the ones who are driving creation. We're even driving God, so to speak, into existence. And why I'm saying that is it not sounds like heretic, heretical. What do you mean you're driving God into existence? Because God exists, but in a non-existent state. So actually it's true. We drive God into existence because before he exists as an existence, he exists in a non-existent state because it can, in a non-definable, he can't even say that he exists. So lofty and so beyond is his presence. So first we have to make him an existence and from his existence, he, he generates all of existence and he gives us the power to make him be. And that's the idea of the verse now we go to the second interpretation in those were in that in that verse chesed yibane, how will kindness will be how will the divine structure be constructed and built initially it was ki amarti god said it and that's how chesed yibane, that's how chesed is built however later on ki amarti is referring to us because king david is the one who says ki amarti davanamelech is speaking on behalf of all jewish souls and David Amalek is the Shekhinah. He's the he is the Merkava, he's the chariot, he's the personification. If there's one soul that captures the energy of the Shekhinah, it's King David. And so David Amalekh says, Kiamarti, when I speak, which means that I speak God when through my words I speak God into existence. Because our speech makes him makes him speak. And where do we find that? There's a verse we spoke about last week. Hashem says, I have chosen you from all the nations and you have, or designated you and you have designated me. As God designated you. And you designated God. Simply it means we designated him to be God. Which means we proclaim his 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 godhood, as opposed to in the pagan world where every second Schmendrick was a god. You know, everybody was a god, and they served every god and so forth. Well, the Jewish people recognized and brought to the world monotheistic belief: God is. So therefore, you designated me as the god of creation. But the word the Torah uses is not a regular word for designation. It uses a, a word that is also associated with. With speech, which really means your speech caused him to speak himself into existence. That means through our speech, we 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 in speech in him into 
So what does that mean, speech? We're talking about God's personality that precedes speech. So I, I don't want to get into this at great length, but last week we spoke that the main generator of emotions, in order to generate an emotion, which is where God's personality, what we're talking about over here is God's emotions. God creates the worlds in six days because he has primary six emotions. And the prime primary force of emotion of, of creation is the is the is the is the emotion of love, of ava, of love, of kindness, loving kindness. And how what what generates kindness? What generates any emotion? What generates love? What generates love is a usually it is based on a certain appreciation. As a result of a certain intellectual appreciation. First it's an intellectual appreciation, and then it descends from the head into the heart, from the mind into the emotions. And the way it works is the connection of mind to heart is like a person has used sometimes a very abstract idea. When the idea is very abstract and very high, it usually doesn't create an emotional reaction because it's still too far, too removed. And then when that idea, however, sticks, sticks around, how does it stick around when you, when you, when you, when you dissect that, that idea, you, you develop it, you, 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 you broaden it, you, you, you turn a little kernel of a distant idea into an entire, uh, an entire you know, mental structure. And by that, by doing that, it becomes very close to you. That's the bina. You take the chachma, which is the flash, you turn it into your bina. But that's not enough. Bina is still an intellectual. It's still a distant, it's still too far from the heart. The next move is that the bina, as the Zohar says, bina liba, that the heart should come down, that the mind should come down into the heart. And that process of the mind descending into the heart happens through speaking in your heart. It's when the idea starts to turn into real words, but it's not like words of the brain. It starts like to be that the heart is talking based on like the mind is creating words in the heart. And it's like, you know, when you, when you study, you, you read something about something phenomenal, you start obsessing about it. And it's almost like your heart is talking. And that's when the, that's when the, that's when the, that's when the, the, the ideas become very, very compelling. They compel. They force you to get excited. They're like pushing the emotions. They drive the emotions. That's called Amira Balev. It's the words. And that's the meaning of Ki Amarti. In order to create Chesed Yiban, in order to create God's kindness, you have to create first the words. Hashem should be talking in his heart. Same thing that happens, like the human experience is to be traced in God as well. You have to create, we have to generate the Amira, the, the, the Hashem's speech, but not, not thought, not completely abstract thought, because that's really intellectual words. Because when, we're, when, we, when, we, when we have like deep insights, we're also talking. But those words are very subtle, and they're very high, and they're very lofty, and they're too far from our heart. The words need to become a little more, not as thickened and as dense as words of, we're not talking about words of the spoken word. We're talking about the words of thought, but thicker thought, denser thought. One that's already more, you know, more related to the emotions, closer to the heart. And from those words, you create an energy of an emotion. That's the way it works. And that's the idea that Bina 
creates and we oh, so we remember the verse we learned last week kol bashamayim uba'aretz shamayim is shamayim is 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 the attributes shamayim means heaven and shamayim is the divine attributes oretz is the creation and what creates what stimulates shamayim what makes the heaven kol kol are the 50 gates of bina because kol is 50 in the, the numeric gematria of the word kol is 50. So kol, which are the 50 gates of Bina, which Bina doesn't stay doesn't stay in its lofty intellectual state. Bina goes down into the heart. And from there, from those words of Bina, it creates emotions. Bina means understanding, it creates emotions. And that's how God's emotions come into play. Now the question is, how do you get God to talk to himself? In his heart. There is the real cool part, which he says, which the discourse is saying. The ones that really can make God talk in his heart is if we're talking, if, if we can do that. We can cause him to, to talk in his own heart. And that's the meaning, ki amarti. When we speak, we create him to speak. But our our speech is also, is not, is not everything is measure for measure. Our speech that creates that is not physical speech. It's the same speech that we want to create above, we create ourselves. So what does that mean? When we are daydreaming about God, which means when we are talking in our heart about God's awesomeness, when we are obsessed with him and we think about him all day long, like Tzadik can do all day long, they can't get God out of their mind and out of their heart. And so the process obviously is not just like this. You wake up one morning and you're obsessed with God. You study, you learn. The more and studying and learning, not in a way that it's like just cold ideas, but studying and learning in a way that you meditate on it, you pray with it, and you meditate and you pray and you pray and you meditate. Which means you take these words and you think very deeply into them. And from this abstract understanding of these very powerful ideas, it starts to become a heart murmur. You start talking a positive heart murmur. You start talking in your heart. And then that creates the fire in our soul. So basically, it's something like this. When a girl is dreaming about a guy, it'll probably cause the guy to dream about her. We're talking if they're in love, a bride, right? So that's the way it works. She's dreaming about him, and her dreaming about him is what's causing him to dream, which means our, our, our obsession. And our heart that we, and that's what, and that's driving our emotion. And that's why we are called Kala. Kala, which means bride, is from the word call. The call is that, that, that heart speech. That's called the Bina words. So we're called Kala because we, where does it, where, let's think about it. What is a bride talking? I mean, if it gets really intense, she'll talk to herself. But most people won't talk to themselves. But she'll be, whenever, whenever, all day long, she'll be dreaming about the day of her wedding and her groom. She's madly in love with him. And it won't be abstract thinking. It will be, it's, it's, her heart will be talking to her. And that will create longing and excitement and love and passion in her heart. And he, her groom, will sense that, even if he's a thousand miles away. Because they're deeply, they're connected on a soul connection. So her words is sensed in his heart. And as a result of that, he starts daydreaming about her. 
And then the more he thinks about her, the more he talks in his heart about her, that creates actual affection and love and drive for him. And therein, in this, in this, in this desire of the heart, that's what the Zohar says. The spirit of the human below, the spirit of our spirituality, our yearning in our heart for God is what creates the entire connection of God to the world. Take that yearning out, take that longing out, and goodbye, Charlie. There's no creation, there's no existence. Someone must be dreaming, someone must be in love. Thank God there are tzaddikim who live this way. Because or else there ain't no creation. That's why it says that without 36 hidden tzaddikim, there is no world. Because you need someone to keep that romance going. And the romance has to always be here. So without that, right, there is a complete disconnect between Hashem and the world. And Hashem reverts back into being exalted, lofty, beyond. And there is... Lack of connection. So the bride creates the thoughts of, she draws the groom to her. She draws him to her and makes that bond and makes that connection. Once his heart is filled with her, with love for her, then he is the bestower. Then he takes care of her and gives her and showers her with all of his blessings and all of his goodness and all of his kindness and so on and so forth. But she's really has the key to his heart. When we speak, we, we structure our, our groom, we structure our love to be, to, be, to be the lover, to be our love and be our provider and be our caretaker and be our king, master, father, everything. Now, however, that's not enough. That does not yet suffice. Because how in the world, even though God loves us, since we are creations and we are tiny and we are small and thereby pretty much pretty much insignificant. And when I say pretty much, let's add a whole lot much to that and minimize the pretty that I said, make it less and less. We are much, 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 much. Add another couple of million times to that much. Insignificant. As much as we can appreciate how un-nothing we are, we're not even a blip of 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 an existence. With all of our wisdom and with all of our understanding and with all of whatever we think we are, we're nothing. To the true infinite being. So how in the world can nothingness generate good? It's God's cute little bride. But like, if God is thinking about retracting into his inf- into his infinity, so once God is already playing house, so to speak, like something, you know, once God is already playing, bought into the game, and he bought into this whole this whole channel that he mitigates himself and turns himself into the creator of the creation and the lover of Israel, and yeah, then of course everything is there. Once he's already in the house, it's one thing, but how do you get him into the house? That's the question. How do you get him into the box? <laughs> He, once, he, once he's in the box of creation, he's in the box, but he's in the barrel, he's in the barrel. But how do you get him into the battle? So she creates that, but how? So the answer to that is that God had to think of that before. Right? If he wanted this, he had to think of that. So what was his plan? Came up with a really good plan. 
He gave the Torah and the mitzvahs. And the Torah and the mitzvot, the Torah and the commandments, they are the triggers. You need something to trigger God, and they are the triggers. And as last week we discussed, because the Torah and mitzvahs are rooted in God's quintessential essence, not as a creator, and not, as I discussed at the beginning of the class, not as a, as already kind of the source of time and space, but God as he's living for himself in his completely secluded, upper, higher, endless, boundless, indescriptive, unknowable place. Over there, where he delights, uh, and believe me, I don't know what this means, but 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 so it's so the mystics say where he delights in himself nothing can exist even outside of himself from that core essential infinite unknowable pleasure and delight he captures that inner delight and inner pleasure of his true inner being he captures that and somehow Codifies it. They really codify it, but like like uh, um, actualizes it into various different particular actions that he can then plant and give to us in creation. Last week I gave an example. I, I didn't see it anywhere, so I'm a little afraid of it. But this is what came out to me in the, the midst of uh, midst of the class last week, which is I, I think this is kind of it. As I told you last week, a story of a, of, a, of a prince and princess who have fallen in love. But I'm not I'm sorry, not a prince and princess, a prince and a peasant girl. Because she's a peasant girl, she really has no royalty. She doesn't even know the world of the royal. She's totally a peasant girl. But he just, for whatever reason, found her that she became the love of his life. But there was always a danger that, you know, just like he found her out of nowhere, he can also, God forbid, dump her out of nowhere. Because, you know, after all, she's just a peasant. So in order that the marriage should be a lasting marriage and not, God forbid, and uh, so the king has, as we discussed, the king had a has an advisor who knew him before he was born, knew him from where, knew his mother and father, <laughs> and, and, and knows the mother and the, 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 the king and the queen, and knew he literally know, know, knows the mother's milk. That's how deep he knows. He knows what's, what this kid nursed on. He knows their, every nuance of his soul. And he was the educator and the care, caretaker. He was literally given, this is his child to raise the kid. So he knows all the ins and outs of the deepest, deepest, deepest inner core of the soul of the child, of, who, of this prince. So he shares a couple of secrets with her. That's what he, he shares with her his secret. His inner, what makes him tick on the deepest inner level. Now, this is information that doesn't even belong to her. There's no, but he does give it to her. That's the ultimate gift. And by doing that, he assures her that she will always have his heart. Because just just when he starts drifting away and kind of losing his focus on her, she throws him a sizzle with something that she knows will, will, will charge him. Now, even though the way she is doing it is in, in, in a form that is like, she's, she's almost like hitting him in the subconscious. That's her. She has a magic spell on him. That's kind of what it is. She almost like has all the buttons into his subconscious at the deepest points. And she's able to trigger him on that level. And that's because, so in this case, God himself gave us his triggers. 
And that's what his mitzvahs are. And we can trigger him. So we learned in the discourse so beautifully. They emanate from what's, what the Alter Rebbe refers to over here. By the way, it's the Alter Rebbe. This is the last discourse we are learning before next week, Tuesday, Monday night. is going to be Rav Zalman of Liadi, the author of this book, Tanya's 210th day of passing, Yorzeit. So it's a special week to be learning his Torah. So the way he phrased this, this awesome idea is that the Torah mitzvahs emanates from mokr kol hatanugim, from the source of all pleasure, from God's inner, inner, inner delight, beyond delight. And somehow Hashem was able to, because he's omnipotent and infinite and he, a, a, uh, a everything able doer, so he can do anything. There's nothing that he's that is. So somehow he's able to capture these this this his inner delight and formulate it into into creation material. And what's the creation material? These are the actions of the mitzvahs. Although the actions of mitzvahs are 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 the mitzvahs are done as actions within the creation. For example, a little girl or a woman lights a, 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 a special Shabbos candle. And that triggers God on the deepest level, lighting that candle. Now, you say anybody else can light a candle. No. It has to be lit only at the time right before the Shabbat. That, when you light it then, that's when it triggers. It has to be a Jewish woman that lights the candle, which will create that trigger. That's 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 one trigger. There's another trigger that on on, on the eve of of Passover you got to eat a, a cracker and munch it and really gobble it up really quick. <laughs> whoever did the whoever came to eat, you know, matzah is like the highest thing in Judaism. It's like the highest thing, like the, the eating of the matzah. <laughs> it's really really interesting because it's, it's it's like if you if you watch it, you would think you know that that what that we would like. Everybody would be floating up and like you would do it and you would say all kinds of sing all kinds of songs and be in like in this very, very spiritual place and everybody would would be like <laughs> levitating. And it would be with you, you'd take a bite and you'd close your eyes and you would sing some some deep, deep, deep meditative songs. And that's not what happens because according to the law, <laughs> you have to crunch that matzah so fast and you have to eat a whole bunch of it so you sit there and you're crunching and you're eating and you're munching down on that matzah like this i don't want to say but it's almost like you're stuffing your face with this cracker and you're eating it and eating it because you have to get it within a certain amount and and that and you have to do it only that night you know eat matzah any other night or any other another setting it's mean and the matzah has to be prepared with all the laws and only when it's done like that it's kosher for whatever reason that we will never know and never understand. And it cannot be conceived in our mind. This is a trigger. This is one of those triggers that triggers in the essence of essence of essence. And then sounds coming from a weird instrument on Rosh Hashanah that is not in any way musical, that doesn't have any talent, that doesn't have any, and it's not even a, you know, it's not like a beautiful violin that is, that is, you know, cost three million dollars. Like, uh, what's his violin name's uh, Yitzhak, uh, whatever his name is, um, Yitzhak, Yitzhak Proman's violin, you know, something like that. I forgot what they called. I read up about it a while ago about the, he has a special kind of violin. I forgot the name of it. And he has two, you know, uh, 
made by Italian violin, you know, who made it back then. You know, it's not that. It's a horn. <laughs> it's a horn from an animal. And yet that blowing of that plain raw sound, Rosh Hashanah, boy, is that a trigger. That's like the trigger of all triggers. So it's really, really weird stuff. And that's the point of the discourse, why we're compared to the horses of the chariot of Pharaoh that we're going to see soon. It's weird stuff that we have zero comprehension and understanding how, what, where, and when. But how are we supposed to figure that out? How are we supposed to know that? What we need to do is we need to bring God to a therapist. And we would need to like get God to like really, really, really um, um, get to the bottom of these you might say queer desires and pleasures that that but obviously we understand that that if if it's god's deepest desires its meaning and its significance and its whatever is 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 utterly infinite and utterly hashem it's utterly who he is and what he is and uh but yet that doesn't make a difference. Just like when you don't have to know the science of how Tylenol works if you have a headache. You really don't have to know the science of it. Pop a pill and your headache goes away. Be stubborn and don't want to pop the pill until you, uh, you speak to a, 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 a what is it, a, uh, a, chem, uh, a chemist or whatever who's going to explain to you and break it down exactly what are you taking with the Tylenol. So sit, God forbid, and suffer with the headache. If you want to get rid of your headache, pop a Tylenol, take, a, take an Advil. Better than that, you know, change your diet, figure out what is causing it. That's on a deeper level. But, 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 but you don't have to always understand how a medication or some, something works. It works, it works. I don't have to know how electricity works before I, turn a, uh, before I use a light bulb. I have no clue how to bother the world, uh, how it works. But still, I know it works, it works. These are the triggers. That's what we're taught. These are the triggers. The Torah is the triggers. The mitzvahs are the triggers. And, and, and pleasure has, a, as I said last week, we learned this beautiful idea. Pleasure has the ability to cause something to expand. Pleasure causes something to expand. When we take God's pleasurable, um, God's essential pleasure, and then assimilate it into our lifestyles, into our lives, and into our daily living, we assimilate it into our daily living, it causes our existence to expand and we're no more a tiny little blip that can't be even noticed on the main we become super mega beings we become the most powerful beings so much so that we can drive god crazy that's how powerful we become we can drive him into out of his shell and into life, into into life, I mean, into engaging with the world and being the God and the creator of creation. That's it. We do that, but it's through the mitzvahs. But again, mitzvahs themselves don't do that. It has to be only the bride that does. It's like I mentioned last week, you know, a woman has the power to her husband's heart to make him want to be alive and live and and she can even awaken in him his passions that he really has, but it doesn't care about kind of without her. It's like with her, he loves all these things. She has to bring up something that he likes. But again, without her, even that delight is kind of dead. 
With her, she gives me, she, she, when she follows and she knows him and she knows the what, what really turns him on on a deep level, but it's her doing it because he's attached to her soul. When she does it, that's when she, that's the tree. So through the Torah and the mitzvot that we do, Israel does, we cause God, we draw him into a relationship with creation. We draw him into the world. And the last point we learned before we're going to continue. And that's why we say, the verse says, Hashem Tzilcha, God is your, Hashem is your shadow. Al Yad Yeminecha, simply it means, and he stands right on the side of your right hand. Simply he's trying to say how close God is to us. Just like a shadow is very close to you. Shadow is very close to you. And, and he's standing, and also he's like by, right by your hand, right hand, right at your at your right side, there to support you. That's the simple meaning, the deeper meaning. All these mitzvot that we do, which are divine triggers, and what are we triggering? Here's the amazing thing. What are we triggering? We're triggering God to do exactly these mitzvot. Because when we do a mitzvah, he does the mitzvah besides us. As the sages say, when we put on tefillin, God puts on tefillin. When we study Torah, God studies Torah. But but the only difference is, we are doing it, we are studying Torah and doing tefillin and, 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 and giving charity and eating matzah and blowing a shofar and, and, and whatever, whatever mitzvah and honoring our physical parents or whatever, whatever, whatever the kindness, whatever the goodness, whatever the mitzvah is, visiting the sick. We are doing it in a physical incarnation, in a physical action. And God is doing these mitzvahs in his, in his infinite realm. And what are those mitzvahs? <laughs> what, what, okay. It's in those mitzvahs and through those mitzvahs that he's opening up and lowering him, in which he establishes the channels through which he, he it's not like we get to know certain secrets about God and we trigger him and then he's, but then we haven't gained anything because we're triggering him in his pleasurable state to himself. That's not the point. The point is we bring him out of being non-existent, of being in this under, indescriptive state and we, we cause God to play. We get him to play. We get him engaged. What's his engagement? His engagement are the mitzvahs. He's doing the mitzvahs. And let me explain that simply. When we're studying Torah, we get God to study Torah. What does God study Torah mean? Hashem's infinite, boundless, unknowable being descends into, when we study Torah, what are we doing? We take ourselves. We also have an energy. Each and every one of us is an energy, is a being. Now that being is what? It's just being. And when we're studying something, what are we doing? We are bringing our beingness into our mind. What happens when you're when when you know when you're tired and you stopped 
when you, let's say you're studying, you're learning, let's say we're learning now for a few hours, right? And then the class is over and you're like, okay, it's like, it was great, good, fine. And then you're tired. You shut your YouTube down, your Facebook down. And you go to bed and close your eyes. What did you just do? For a few hours, you were swimming in these deep ideas. And now maybe a little bit is lingering, but then you pull yourself out of it, out of your mind. And now your energy is not in your mind. Your energy is just relaxing. You're not in your mind. Or maybe you have something else to do. Maybe you have business to do. So you put yourself into that business. Or maybe you have a chore to do, a physical thing. Maybe you go out and you're cooking. So then you're putting your energy into cooking. But when you're studying, you're putting yourself, you're entering your mind. That's what you're doing. You're having your soul, your energy, your being is entering your mind. When you're being kind, what are you doing? You're entering your kindness. You have an, you have an act, a, 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 a potential kindness. You have it. But you're not there. But now when you're feeling kind or when you're going to do an act of generosity, it's like you are now investing yourself into your kindness. So as we do that, we cause God to literally mimic and do the same thing above. He is entering into his wisdom. Now, by God, what does that mean? It means he's taking an infinite plunge. He's descending boundlessly into something specific because he, in essence, is beyond specification. So when we're learning Torah, which is one of the triggers, we are triggering him into entering into his intelligence. Now, one of the things we need of God in order to be the creator, the being the creator, is he first needs to have an intelligence. So how does he enter his intelligence? Through this, that right now, as I and you are, 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 are studying right now, we are studying right now over the lines of the, of, the, of the internet. We're studying. As we are doing this, we're part of this process. We're part of this amazing experience that we are generating. All the other people, millions of, not millions, but for sure, hundreds of thousands of Jews around the world are studying Torah. Different, different formats. In yeshivas and shuls and places, people study. Thursday night in general, lots of people stay up all night and study. People study. The very Many people in Israel is already in the morning. They're studying. Get up to study. And by all this studying, we're actually so many triggers. We're, tra- we're, we're triggering God to be in his intelligence. And his intelligence creates the cosmos. It doesn't create the cosmos directly. It's the ideas behind the cosmos and then from those ideas comes his emotions as we spoke earlier and the emotions are what drive the cosmos into creation so it's very important for god to first be in into- to be to be within his intelligence and through torah hashem descends into his intelligence through tefillin god descends also into his brain because tefillin is also has to do with the brain through charity god descends into his kindness so that's the meaning when the verse says, Hashem, Hashem Tzilcha, Hashem is your shadow. Just like your shadow dances along with you, whichever direction you go, your shadow will also go. So God dances along with us. But the verse says, here's the very important, why is it called shadow? Oi, this is so awesome. Why is it called shadow? It's called shadow because just like shadow, is an imitation of you, but it's an imitation of darkness. It's not an imitation of light. Which means the way it's imitating you is through a dark blotch. 
The shadow is when you're, the, what is it, how is the shadow created? By the person blocking the light. That's what creates the shadow. So the shadow is a imitation. It's a form of yourself, but in darkness. So here's what the altar Rebbe is saying. When we are doing a mitzvah, there's a shadow coming along. There's an imitation. The infinite being himself, God Almighty, with all of his infinity, is now dancing along with you in the mitzvah you're doing. But it's darkness. Because we have no clue what that mitzvah means. How that's causing infinite bliss and ecstasy and triggering the big deepest. And God is doing something utterly godly that we have no, we don't know what that is. But it's happening while we're doing the mitzvah. Because Hashem Tzilch, Hashem is your shadow. It's dark because we don't comprehend. But here's a very important line, which we did it very fast last week, and now from here we continue. There's one most important thing. The underlying current that gets all this to happen is that the underneath it all, there is a romance. When there is no romance, and there is no underlying love, all of this is not happening. It's what is causing, it's, it's, it's God's pleasurable I'll give you an example. If a stranger hangs out with this girl, let's go back to the girl, the, 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 the wife, the princess, who is now the princess. Maybe she might even be the queen. The king died and now her husband became the king. She's the queen. And uh, someone decides that they're going to, and, they, and people notice how the king is literally infatuated with her. He is literally in love with her like crazy. It's beautiful. So many stories with kings and whatever, and the king had his eyes elsewhere. But here, nobody else, only his wife. His wife is like, he's crazy about it. And everybody in the kingdom knows that. So someone catches on that she must have a spell on him. So this person decided to like, see what she does. and And she notices how she... What she does, her movements and so on and so forth, that will turn him on, that will, that will trigger him. Let's say it's a girl who's jealous of him. And she decides to do the same thing to catch the king's attention. Not only will she not evoke a positive response, she might actually get herself into big, big trouble. Because the king doesn't want this from every, from every girl that's out there. The king wants it from his beloved wife. She and him are so deeply one. His heart is so deeply connected to her that it has to be when she, oh, hold it. She's doing things that are meaningful. And we said these are triggers. Yeah, it's triggers to someone you're in love with. But someone who's not, if you're trying to get into these private nuances of what is so delicate and what is so dear and what is so deep and you're not invited there, you're not gonna either you'll be ignored completely or it actually is very un, it's 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 not gonna be good. So that's what the verse is saying. Hashem Silch Hashem is your shadow, Al Yad your right by your right hand, on the side of your right hand. The right side is love. And and basically what that means, Judaism and our observance of mitzvahs are not a mechanical observance 
It's not a, a, a dry observance. It's a romantic experience between, between Hashem and, and His bride. So being Jewish and doing the mitzvot are, it's driven with a, it's, it's based on a, on, a, on a deep bond and a deep love and a deep affection that's there. And it helps a lot when we are conscious of it. And when we're doing mitzvahs, not just by rote or even because we want to attain certain qualities and refinements and all of that. It's doing mitzvahs by understanding the attachment that we have with God. And the understanding how we are turning God on through these observances. And we do it in the, and, and that causes our heart to pump with excitement when we're doing the mitzvah. Then the mitzvah is, then the mitzvah is, is potent. The mitzvah is, is causing a reaction. Let me, let me put it this way. What happens if this girl, I'm using these examples which I didn't see in the discourse, but it just follows. What happens if this princess or this queen by now, you know, starts getting accustomed to everything she's doing and stops even realizing that she's doing these things to trigger him. She just starts doing it and she's totally mindless. In other words, she has to do it with that twinkle in her eye that she's, she's, she, she knows she wants to catch his attention. She's emphasizing the love. She's catching the love. If she's just doing whatever, and she and she and she, then, then 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 it's gone. The whole thing is gone. It becomes stale. It becomes dead. And there's nothing there. She can do it from today till tomorrow. It's not triggering anything. So these are all the nuances that have to be in place for it to work. Her love on her own, without doing what he likes, what it triggers him, because she's a peasant girl, won't won't, won't do it. So a person can't say, I'm in love with God. I, I, I sing to him in my heart. I, I daydream about him all day long. I'm capturing God's attention. doesn't work that way. It has to be through the mitzvot. But on the other hand, just observance of mitzvahs are not going to do it either. Because it's not al yad yeminecha. It's not based on your, on, on your right hand, which means it's not based on the love. It's the love that's there. And then you do the mitzvahs. Then as a result of that, we trigger Hashem into being the chassan, the groom, who's yoytzei mechil pasa, who comes out from his chuppah. By the way, this is very important before we continue. And one more idea, which I, want, which I didn't emphasize, is this concept that God shares with us, his deepest pleasure and his deepest delight, that we have no clue what it is, which triggers him to descend downward as a result of our observance of the mitzvahs. It causes him to descend into a form, into being a god, into being the heaven, into being the sun, as opposed to, to being beyond the sun, or as opposed to being beyond the heaven, or beyond being the husband, or beyond what causes the groom to come out as a groom. We said she causes it, but she can only cause it because he gave her the ability to do so. And the story I gave it was the king's minister or the king's uh, educator who gave it to her. In this case, it's him himself who shared it with her. Okay, but where is that coming from? That's the idea of yoytse mechu pasai. That's the concept of the chotot. According to this understanding, when bride and groom are entering under the chuppah, chuppah means the canopy, the marriage canopy, in our imagery, the groom and the bride exist independently before they go to the chuppah. And then they go under the chuppah and they become married. 
But let's try to create a little bit of a different image. Let's find the chuppah where all you have is a canopy. An empty canopy. All the guests and everybody's there, but it's an empty canopy. And then from the canopy fall out a grime and a, a bride and a groom. And almost like the chuppah creates the groom. That's the meaning. The chasm comes out of the chuppah. What does that mean? God's higher, unknowable, personal, transcendental self. That's the chuppah. But not really. Even deeper than that. The pleasure. Chuppah is what generates the chasm. So the inner delight and inner pleasure, what he calls the inside of the orange self. The orange self itself is what we want to trigger to emerge outward. But the inner element of the orange self, the inner part of the crown, like we spoke many times in the crown, there is the external part of the crown, which is the will of God, and the internal part, the pleasure, that's the chup. That's the canopy. The canopy... The canopy is what facilitates their relationship as husband and wife. Because if she was never exposed to this canopy, in other words, if she did not get access to these inherent, infinite, boundless, unknowable pleasure that 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 is that is his inner makeup of his inner being, then she could never be his wife. She can be his wife because she she touched base with that chuppah. The chuppah empowered her, and then she, under the chuppah, pulls him down into the, into being her girl. That's the that's in the spiritual dynamics of this chuppah. We don't do that in a regular chuppah because in a regular chuppah he stands there before she comes. She comes and she surrounds him in the chuppah. So it's not an exact uh, element of, in this particular analogy that we're learning over here. But this is the concept. He is emerging. The chuppah is the inner delight and inner the pleasure where the Torah and mitzvot come from, where they emanate from, in their utterly godly state. And that's what causes him to come out as a son. And another way of seeing son, I don't mean a son, a child. I mean a son, the son of the sky. And it's actually reminiscent of the sun. Or you can see it in the sun. Because the sun kind of is, when at, in the middle of the night, there is no sun. There is a dark sky. And then from somewhere, from beyond the veil of the, of the sky, of the dark curtains of the sky, the sun blasts through. The light comes through and suddenly the sun comes up, sunrise. It breaks out of the darkness and there it is. And that's the groom. So we might say the, pre, the, 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 the darkness before is utterly unknowable. That's the chuppah. And from the darkness emanates the sun. And what would God be in when he's a son? Just like the sun provides the ability for life, the light that's going to later warm the earth and cause all life on earth to be able to be sustainable through the sun. In the same way, God, as he emerges as our creator, he's already shining to the world as opposed to his secluded, unknowable self where he's beyond being a son. So on the sun we say, he's like the chasan who comes out. Now, how is he coming out? He's coming out in the image of his mitzvot, because that's his personality. That's why the Torah is also called the sun. Because this, again, 
God's image, when God comes out in a form, what's his form? The Torah. And by us fulfilling the Torah, we're drawing God down into the form of the Torah. We cause him to keep the Torah and be the man that he has to be. And we can be his wife. And through us being his wife, the rest of creation could be sustained. Okay. This is a this is the only class in the world where you get an hour and 12 minute introduction to the class. Now we can start learning. Chapter number three. Now, in general, all the 248 mitzvot, the sum total of the mitzvot, positive commandments, action kind of commandments are 248, corresponding to the limbs of our bodies, but the Zohar says corresponding to God's limbs. What does that mean? Prior to the mitzvahs, God has no limbs because he has no forms. The mitzvahs are what bring him into form. But how does he have mitzvahs? He, he does the mitzvahs. He can't do it unless we do it. And that's when he wants to do it. It's like a person who loves fishing, but he's not going to go fishing unless his wife says, I'm going fishing with you. She wants to go fishing. Now he's going fishing. He loves hiking, but he's not going to go, even though he loves it, unless his wife says, let's go on a hike. Now she's now because he loves her. And when she knows, that's what we're saying. So God doesn't do these mitzvahs unless we do them. And together with us, he wants to do them. That's the whole idea we're learning over here. Now, even though in general, the 248 commandments are 248, but just like in a human structure, if you look at a human body, there is a right and a left and a center. So, for example, in the face, there is the right eye, the left eye, and then there's in between the two eyes, there is the nose. That's the center. The mouth is kind of in the center. Then there's the right ear and the left ear and the right cheek and the left cheek and the right jaw and the left jaw. The chin is in the center. The right, right? That's the person. The same is also in the body. The right hand, the left hand, the torso. Right leg, left leg. You sew this, the middle. So you have right, left, and center. So he's going to show you that this observance of mitzvahs that we do, and as a result of that, we cause God to emulate us, and as a result of that, create the man of the cosmos, is, is divided into three channels. This, this is the, remember, this is going to be this, the Alter Rebbe said this at the same season or the same day even, that he said the other discourse when we spoke about the two segels, Triple that we are called Segulto because we draw we draw we draw God into the world through the three dots. We spoke about the earrings that are three, and there's there's one from below and one from above. Same idea. These ideas integrate because it was all said at the same time. And the 248 commandments are divided to three levels. Torah means Torah study, even though it's only one mitzvah. It gener- it general it's a general category and it and it and it represents the middle column. Avoda is the, the is, is service of Hashem, which is tr- translated primarily as sacrificial services, and also in prayer, because prayer is also part of this this avoda, and also Gemilas Chasadim, acts of kindness. 
So that, you know, where does he take where does he take this idea to divide the Torah into these three things? You can maybe pick other things. So he says, well, this is what the sages say in Ethics of the Fathers, that the world stands on three things. Torah, Avod, these are the three pillars. So what are, Valzen, Emar, now on this it says, in this very same verses that we mentioned earlier, chapter 19 in Psalms, where it discusses um, the sun coming out, out of the heaven, it says, when it says, first it says, the heavens relate the glory of God. And then it says, Yoim li yoim yabia omer. Day by day they speak. Yabia, they convey omer words. Even though the heavens are not speaking, just by showing up every day, there's a sky. Yabia, it conveys omer words. That's a simple meaning. The heavens speak daily. Then it says, Velayla lalayla, and night to night, Yechavedos, they express knowledge. Or they speak knowledge, convey knowledge. What is the deeper meaning? We're talking about all the emergence, the emergence of God to emerge into beingness, from non-beingness, and be, as we spoke earlier, be the man of creation, be the groom. We have to structure God into his limbs. Ah, yom, so that's day. Day means revelation. Yom, yom, revelation, revelation, day by day, emanation, emanation. Because when God is hidden, he's unknown, it's darkness. We spoke earlier, the sun emerges, sun is day. Yom, day, the yom by day, yabia. Yabia means he flows, flowing from where? Just like a spring. A spring is deep in the earth. It, it's unknown, you don't see the waters. But when it, it comes up out of the surface, yabia, it, it, it comes to the surface, now it's, 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 it's detectable. So too, the revelations of Hashem, yabia, come forth from the unknowable fountain, from the unknowable spring where it's still all in potential. It emerges outward. But how does it emerge outward? Omer. Omer is is the word Aleph Memresh. It's made up of the three letters, Aleph Memresh. These are the three channels. Aleph Memresh is the three, the, three, the three channels because Aleph is also the acronym for the word Aish. Mem is the acronym, which means the first letter of the word Mayim. And Resh is the acronym for the word Ruach. Eish, Mayim, Ruach are the three primary substances of existence. Fire, water, and air. Eish, Mayim, Ruach. So the point over here is that God emerges into already a source for the creation. For the Eish, Mayim, and Ruach. Which in God it means God's love is water. God's discipline is fire. And God's compassion is wind the right side remember we said before the limbs are structured the right side is water kindness the left side is fire and the middle where the mouth is is wind speech deep words uh air fire water and so torah when it emanates into a discernible discipline into a discernible book into discernible um it's, it emanates through fire, wind, and water. Um, 
Omer is the acronym of the words Eishmaim Ruach, fire, water, and wind. Eish, so what's fire? Fire is not just one particular mitzvah. It's a category of mitzvahs. It's all the mitzvahs that are related to the fire, which is to the left side. It's related to the energy of that is that it is conveyed in the mitzvah, in those mitzvahs that are related to avoda. Avoda means service of God. And what does service mean? Just like fire. The nature of fire is that fire ascends from a low place to a high place. Fire is always rising. The same is also the energy in mitzvahs where we rise towards God. So there are certain mitzvahs that they're, they're, the character of the mitzvah is a rising upward. And that kind of stimulates God's left side because God's left side is also a return of energy. Even though in general, all the, all the mitzvahs are all about bringing God down into a human into a human form. But that human form has to have a balance, a flow, and a rising, and that's the balance, the balance of kindness and discipline. That's how creation is built on. So the discipline element and the is is an is a is a, is an energy returning back to self, as opposed to kindness, which is a flow outward. And that's fire. So how do we generate that? Through we're doing a mitzvah that reflects this 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 energy so it's compared like fire like fire that is rising so what does that mean how does that translate into the human observance how do we do this mitzvah by us it's a mitzvah that causes us to cleave to him that we should become like fire we exhibit the fire inside of us to cleave to God and so we literally we, 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 we emulate fire and it's not we're emulating it. We're just discovering the fire that is within us. But that fire within us is the same like physical fire, just on a spiritual level. We don't have physical fire inside of us, but it's the same energy. What does fire do? Fire is rising upward and it's seeking to escape whatever it is that's holding it down. That's why it's leaping upward. And in our experiences, it means that we have within ourselves part of our Part of our, our regimen of serving God, part of our Jewish experience, are times when we experience longing, elevation, desire to get out of the physical and to move more into a spiritual place. That's what prayer is meant to be. That's what singing songs are meant to be. That's what, yeah. and that which was primarily the experience in the Holy Temple. When Jews came to the temple, they experienced like flames of fire. They almost didn't come out of the temple alive. That's how intense it was. Their souls would flare up with such. When the Levites started playing music, forget about it. They 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 had to hold on to something and dig their their fingers until they were their knuckles were white and their faces were purple. They had to hold on. They they felt intense longing for their souls to just cleave to the infinite, similar to like the giving of the Torah. And all this was accompanied while they offered sacrifices, because that's what sacrifices really are also, to release the spirit of the animal outside of its physical trapping and allow that energy to be reunite with its source. 
that the soul should undress herself from the garments of Noga. Noga is the klipa. Noga is a, a term that is used for the, for the shells. So the soul is now prompted in prayer to undress itself and to unclothe herself from Noga, from the entrapment in the klipa, which is Daumini. And that's why the soul is so, so vehemently want to run away from here. Because over here, the world, the, the garments of this world block and obscure Hashem's truth. And the soul is pained by it. And now, what is so part of those garments, what are the garments that enclose our soul? The garments that enclose our soul are the physical pleasures which we become obsessed and entrenched in. The pleasures of life, which we seek to make, we become obsessed with money. We obsessed, become obsessed with food. We become obsessed with other forms of physical things. And they take us away from our focus on God. So it's all a distraction. It's all a cover-up. And the soul buys into it. But the soul realizes continuously how foolish it is. And the soul like gets frustrated by the fact that it got caught up with these things. And then it says, get me out of here. Get me out of it. It wants to like break free. The soul should free itself and liberate herself and unclothe herself. From the garments of the klipa. And what are those? Which are the pleasures of humans. Which are other people, meaning those that are not spiritual seekers. Are you know kind of trapped in, and instead of finding pleasure and delight in all these fleeting, temporal, empty things of the of 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 a here, instead lis anegal Hashem to find the the light and the true source of the light in God levadalo. So this is the and when do we so from time to time we experience this we ought to experience this. Well then as I now, reflecting this were the sacrifices in the temple. When you when we brought a sacrifice and it was considered a fire, a fire offering, a pleasant, a pleasant uh, aroma, a pleasant scent for God. So what does that mean? God enjoyed the burning flesh. No, God enjoyed the message it was con- conveyed. It was a soul, souls that were burning to reunite with God. But how do they do that? How do you? What do you do with an animal? You take the main part of a sacrifice was after they sprinkled, they, number one, the blood. The blood was caught in a, in a basin and it was sprinkled on the altar. And then they would cut the animal open, the dead animal, and they would take out certain fats, primarily the fats, and the fats got burnt on the altar. The rest of the animal was eating, is eaten depending on the type of sacrifice. Some of them were eaten by the owners and some of them were eaten by the priests. But the part that went only for God was the blood, because we're never allowed to eat blood and fat. Fat also went to God. Why these two parts? So this is symbolic. This means something. What does it mean? Okay. Because fat comes from pleasure. What really causes the, 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 the person's flesh to expand and become to, to, to go into expansion is pleasure. We said earlier, pleasure opens, pleasure causes. So the more pleasure, the more fat. And the person can become fat. And have a lot of chelev, 
more pleasure, it produces, pleasure produces the fat. So now what are we doing? And what is blood? Blood is passion. So what we're realizing is that our passion, a soul has passion, and a soul has pleasure, the pleasure in God. But a person realizes, what's going on with me? I totally lost my blood. My blood went into the wrong things. I become passionate about such temporal things. And I find pleasure and obsessed with the pleasures of the fleeting things of this world. And I don't want to. I want to undress my pleasure. I want to put my pleasure back where it really belongs. To have the infinite pleasure that we can have in God and the infinite passion. Because once you have pleasure in God, then you become very driven towards God because we get driven by where we get our pleasure from. So once we can re reassign our pleasure to the right place, we will automatically reassign our passion to the right place. And that's what we're doing when we're doing a sacrifice. We're doing it with the animal, but it's supposed to reflect in our in our being as well. The the physic the pleasure of the animal instead it gets offered to God and what happens to it it becomes consumed and burnt up in the in the fire that comes from above in a hot, in a holy fire because the fire on the altar was a holy fire now what is it doing to the what is it doing to the fat it's elevating this fat and now the fat is rejoining which is which the fat is really pleasure and now this fat which is the pleasure is now being through the fire elevated to the spiritual and ultimately to the divine and then higher, higher, higher until it's getting, it's finding its root back into the infinite source of pleasure of God himself. So a lost piece of pleasure, a lost piece of fat went back to the real inner pure highest element of fat, which is the infinite delight and pleasure of God. And And today's days when we're not doing these this physical mitzvah, because we don't have a temple to do a sacrifice. Which, by the way, I, I saw someone pointed out, uh, really, really, really cool. Uh, sacrifices are coming back to America. There was a law, a certain council in Michigan. You hear the story. It was a council in Michigan that voted to permit animal sacrifices. There were some Muslims who wanted to do animal sacrifices. And they got permission. The council voted to allow the sacrifices to be brought back. <laughs> and someone pointed out, wow, what a Mashiach thing. Because we know when the temp- when Mashiach comes any second, the temple will be restored. So I guess we, Hashem is making that people should get used to the idea a little bit. So suddenly animal sacrifices <laughs> are back in Back in style, at least in this town in Michigan. I don't know which town it is. Which they had some Muslim councilmen. And they decided to permit it. So, um, so you know, when, when that's going to happen, fine. But until that moment, in, in, in Judaism, we will not have sacrifices. Until we have a temple. When we have a temple, we will bring them back. But now, we have to mimic the same experience, but we do it in a more psychological way than doing it physical. The Akshav and now at Philobakarbana's prayer takes the space of the of the of the sacrifices. Through the flames, through the flaming love, which one awakens during prayer. Avel Yaina, a supernal love. 
a love towards God. As it says, that with, with great love you have loved us. Hashem has chosen the Jewish people with love. So, but what, he's, what I think he's hinting to is that it's not only that we, we create our love to God, but through prayer, if we're lucky enough, we open up and our love to God is met by God's love to us. And when we suddenly, when our love kind of hits the frequency of God's love, then our love is exponentially multiplied. And it becomes like an, a, 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 an intense love that is indescribable. By a day that, and once one accomplishes that, to spot it with the spashita the very good way. To include, if people want to, um, what's it called again, figure out finally a solution, because people are always struggling with weight, and we want to figure out a solution, how to get, like finally put an end to our constant pleasure-seeking natures, and that's why we overeat. So how to put an end to it is to bring a sacrifice. In other words, bring yourself to experience the true love to God and raise your pleasure and sacrifice your pleasure on the altar, and then it's no more appealing because you don't have to find pleasure in the little crumbs of pleasure. You're now receiving pleasure in the divine. Now, does that, will that cause one to be physically physically overweight? Well, possible. It's just a different definition of pleasure, but you're still getting pleasure, so you're still building fat. <laughs> so it might be dangerous what I'm saying. Where do we find that? We find that that Rabbi Nochem of Chernobyl, one of the great, the colleague of the author, Rabbi Alta Alta Rabbi, had a friend, Rabbi Nochem of Chernobyl. And he was a heavy person, but his, he hardly ate. He didn't eat. How was he heavy? He had so much pleasure and delight when he, when he would say, Amen Yehishmei Rabbah. In his prayers, when he when he would sanctify God's name, it gave him such a sensation of ecstasy and bliss that literally that caused him that increased his fat and he was physically fat. Awesome, awesome teaching. But so we learn. So, but when a person does this, what happens? is you're yanking your pleasure out from the animalistic distortion, and instead you're replacing it in its proper place. That one should find delight in God, and to cleave, with an attachment and with a longing. So all of this was an explanation of the left side. So remember, let's see. Sometimes these things go on, and we had a long discussion of what sacrifices are. But what it really is, is the left column. It's a mitzvah, and when we do this mitzvah, either through bringing a sacrifice or through experiencing prayer. We are causing God too to descend into his fire. And we structure God's left side. Then, my, then there's, remember we said the Torah is primarily divided into three structures, three columns. The other primary column is water. And water is and water is the mitzvahs associated with doing kindness. Now, how many mitzvahs are they? So many. Visiting the sick, um, burying those who 
pass away. Um, helping a bride get married. Um, just giving a loan to someone when they're in need. Giving charity to those that are in need. So many mitzvahs that have to do with kindness. So all those mitzvahs are water. And, and giving charity, which are all compared to water. Like it says, Fortunate are those who plant on water. What does that mean? And the planting over here means tzedakah, that they do charity, they're planting a mitzvah over their water, which is their kindness. The kindness is the water. That's What's the relationship of kindness to water? Just like water has the opposite nature of fire. Fire is rising and water is descending. And water always goes from a high place to a low place. So it is when we're doing charity, we are flowing to a lower place. What do I mean a lower place? We meet someone who is in need. The fact that they are in need puts them in a position, a little bit of a weak position a disadvantage, and we thank God have the means, so in this particular aspect, let's say financially, I'm in a higher place, I'm doing better, I have, but this person is impoverished, they don't have, so they're in a lower place, and high and low meaning in the sense of, and now that you can provide to them what they need, means you're descending from your higher place into this lower place, and it can be in financially, it can be with knowledge, someone who could be very poor, they don't know anything, and you share your knowledge with them, so now you're lowering yourself down to a lower place. And that's all following the element of water. <laughs> to enliven the spirit of the lowly. <laughs> to the one who doesn't have anything. In that sense, so when we do these types of mitzvot, what are we causing above? We're causing God to descend into his right side. We're structuring God as a kind being. Now, but then there's the middle. What's the middle? The middle is primarily speech, which is wind, which we say water, fire, and wind. And now what's wind? Wind has the nature is in between, just like the, because wind goes up and down. Wind is not necessarily always descending and wind is not always ascending. Gusts of winds, they blow up, they blow down. They're, they're not, they're kind of in the middle, but they're, they can be in a little bit upward flow and downward and so forth. So what is that by us? What kind of mitzvahs are associated with wind, holy wind? That's the mitzvahs associated with speech, which primary it's the mitzvah of studying Torah. Because Torah, we're used to thinking Torah is only knowledge, but the mitzvah of Torah study is to speak it, which means to create holy breath. Which is the study of Torah. Which the primary a force in Torah is speech. As it says, you should speak in them. When it tells you the mitzvah to learn Torah, it says, speak in it. As it says in the Zohar, the Zohar says, in the spirit of those people who study Torah. So it calls it rucha, spirits. So when we engage in Torah, that's the center. We draw God into the middle, middle column, which is compassion, which is a whatever. These three channels of Torah, which again, more specifically, it's 248 limbs, just like a human being is 248 limbs. 
but more in general, it's three columns. Shehem Omer, which is Eish, Mayim, and Ruach. Umashekosav, now we understand what it means when it says Ki Om. Again, what did we say? Now we go back to the verse. To the first, first we go back to the last verse, and then we'll go back to an earlier verse. We said earlier, Yom Leom, every single day, Yabiyah, we cause the flow, Omer. We cause God to emerge from his unknowable state into the fire column, the water column, and the wind column. Yabiyah, we're bringing him into Emor, and Emor also means speech, because it's these three emotions of God that is the source of God's speech, which God creates the world with those speech. So Omer, Emor, Abbasar, Mamara, Hashem creates the world. Now, let's go back earlier. What did we say? Our job is Ki Amarti. We need to cause, when I speak, Oilam Chesed Yibana, we cause God to, that God's kindness to be built. We use the same word, Ki Amarti. And we said it means that through our speech, we cause God to speak. This, over here, we say speech, we don't even mean speak. Speech of the mouth, we cause the speech of the heart to create the emotions. The murmuring of the heart, the talking of the heart, which creates the emotions. So we fuel the fire, wind, and Fire, wind, and water. We fuel it by creating those words, those speech. So now it's ki amarti. Ki amarti chesed When we speak. In other words, when we do the mitzvahs of the three columns. See, this is, he's learning a little different than he learned earlier, but it's a continuation. Earlier we learned that the main part of the, of the amarti when I spoke is the love. Because when you, when we, when the words I used earlier was when we're daydreaming about God, when we're talking in our heart about God, we're obsessing about him, it causes him to feel it, that he's also speaking. But that's not enough. You have to daydream with love, and then you have to do the mitzvahs because you have to pull the triggers. And the triggers are the mitzvahs. You have to, you have to, you have to trigger. And, 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 and when you're doing that, you're, you're actually creating the the love and the murmur in God's heart, which then flow into the structure of God's limbs, Esh, Mayim, Ruach, kindness, severity, and and the middle column of compassion, beauty. Pidish, ki amarti, what does that mean? Shayadei b'chenas oimer shali, through my words, al yadei zeh, through this, gamesavaya he'emarta, we cause God to also speak. Through our speech, we cause him to speak. Like another verse we mentioned earlier, Es Hashem HaMarta, we caused God to speak. Laham Shech Misham Havaya, to draw forth Havaya, Chinas Emor, to draw Hashem down into a, a identifiable entity. Shehu Inyan HaKadosh Baruch This is the concept that God descends. Through our mitzvahs, he descends. He puts on Tefillin. He puts on Tefillin means he enters into his his structure, as opposed to him ascending outside of his structure. He's entering into a structure. Which is the idea of drawing the infinite from above the order of creation. We're drawing God down into the order of creation. As we said earlier. And this is the meaning of that God is now emerging like a groom going out of his chuppah. Why is he called a groom? Because in Hebrew, the word groom means a descent. 
the etymology of the word groom is descending. The etymology of the word bride in Hebrew is kala, which means ascending. She's ascending upward, he is descending downward. In what sense, what does that mean? Since he is the giver and she's the recipient, since God is the groom and we are the bride, we need to rise to him and he needs to descend to us. So that, so that's the idea. He's emerging and descending from what? From being beyond any description, from beyond beyond form into form. But again, we're the ones triggering him to be our our groom. So why? Because we 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 poke the chuppah. That's what we're doing. See what we're doing. As what we do is we 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 keep on, on, on stimulating the chuppah, which are the pleasure, the supernal inner pleasure above, and as provide, provoking the, 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 the chuppah, we draw a chasin down from the chuppah. We cause him to fall down from the roof. Right? We, literally, we cause him like to emerge from the chuppah. He's coming out from no, from unknowable. Yeah. He's descending. Because the Torah is descending from her true quality and a true honor where the Torah is beyond words, where Torah is just rooted in the infinite pleasure. Over there, the Torah doesn't have words. It's not a Torah Shabbat. It's not a written Torah. It's beyond written. It's, it's as he says over here, the Torah in its initial form is klula. It is included it is utterly undetectable and unknowable. It's inside the orange self and the infinite being. Like we spoke earlier, I mentioned to you that you have a poet who his poetry, before he ever invented his poetry, but the poetry is there. It's just in his in his or her potential. The root of all pleasure. The Yarda, and then it, des- it descends lihislabish, and the Torah descends to come down binyanim gashmiyam. And the Torah merges outward into physical things. And again, even though now he's talking about the Torah, it refers to God also. God is emerging outward into a structure of emotions as opposed to his essential being. But the Torah is coming all the way down over here. And it's actually the Torah, who is one with God, is actually coming down to us and manifesting these very amazingly, infinitely godly, great mitzvot it's emerging in a way that's becoming so tangible that it turns into a cracker on your table, a munchable cracker. It turns into a, a mitzvah, a physical mitzvah. And it descended to go down into physicality. Oh, Yossi. This is Kim. One day I might get a collation. I'll give it. You give it to you. But not. Kim, Kim, Kim. Yeah. Get a, get a safer. Is it in there? No, no, no. And this descending energy is going out of his chuppah. It's descending from the soivik. It's descending from its lofty, lofty state. 
from the Soviet Kalaman state. You're in the splash zone over here, Yossi. You know that. Um, it's uh, Yossis Kigiba, like six, like uh, ten lines from the top, from the bottom. I mean, Yossis Kigiba, Lord, it's Oirech. But here's the amazing thing when the Torah emerges from its utterly unknowable secretive state of being literally one with God's infinite pleasure. And the Torah emerges into letters and into words and into mitzvahs that we could define. Then what happens? Yasis, it rejoices. What does it say? Continue. Yasis kegibar. Then the Torah comes racing outward very powerfully. In other words, the Torah doesn't come down into the world very sluggish and reluctant. It comes out. Why? Lord, it's orach, it's running on the road. So he's explaining what does orach mean? It's running to its bride. It's the chassan running to, to his bride. Now, interesting, because in the, sim- the simple story, the chassan goes out of the chuppah. He's leaving the chuppah. He's with his bride over there. He's taking her. But here, it seems to be, he is going out of a chuppah to go meet her. The chuppah, like, produces him, and now he's going to meet his bride. Lord, it's orach, he's racing down. Now, orach simply means on the road. But really, who is that? The road is referring to Malchus, to the Shekhinah. Because by a woman, it says, Where does it say that? It says it by, by Rachel. No, by it says by Sarah. By Sarah, it says that Avram and Sarah were becoming old. Sarah had stopped having He stopped having a period already. Okay, so Sarah reached menopause and she didn't have any. So that, that's what Sarah, then she became young again. So the Torah uses the word Oirach. Oirach means the way, the way of woman. So now he's saying, so therefore we find that the word Nashim, the woman with Oirach, the sages, the, the, the verse uses Oirach associated with a woman. So it says that, he's, that the, the son is running Loritz Oirach means he's running towards the one who has Oirach, which is the woman. Okay? Dahainu, that means, then we're going to see why you're emphasizing this particular aspect. We're going to get soon. Dahainu, Lipchenaz Kala, he's running towards the bride, Shu Knesset Yisrael, HaKadosh Baruch who is the Torah Shabiksav, the masculine side of God, that's the Torah, who is now running towards Knesset Yisrael, is going to. To his wife, he's going to the Shechina. He's going to Torah Shabbat, which is the Shechina. Mocker Nishmas Yisrael, who's the so- source of all souls. Liten, why is he running? Because what's the point of the? So here's remember what did we say earlier? Through the Torah and the mitzvahs, what happens? The bride, which is Knesset Yisrael, which is which is Israel, so on and so forth, have the koach, the ability to generate creation. Without Torah and mitzvahs, we wouldn't have the triggers. That's what we discussed earlier. We wouldn't have what to trigger God with. Through the Torah Shabbat emanating to us and then coming into the Torah Shabbat, into the oral law, and over there it being explained, or let's take it further. This Again, what he's saying over here is something that's multi-layered, but it's the same idea. It's chasen going to kala. It's groom going to bride. The question is, what are you referring to chasen and kala? In Torah, bride and groom are 
the written Torah that flows into the oral Torah to be explained in the oral Torah. In the world in general, Hassan is God and the Jewish people are Kala. And both of them are true. The Torah and God are and Hashem as a Kodesh Baruch Hu, is is moving towards where? Towards the bride, towards Knesset Yisrael. And once it comes to us, then what's the point? So that we can do these mitzvahs in our world. And as we're doing them in our world, we further generate that he should come down as a groom. So you're really over here happening like a, a, a recycling. In other words, it's going in circles. And as the Torah has to come down, because without the Torah, we couldn't trigger him. So the Torah comes down to give us the, the deep nuances of Hashem's neshama, so to speak, of Hashem's inner being, that when we do, do, we do these things, we poke him in the deepest inner part. He can't help but love us. He can't help but turn his attention to us. That's what it is. These are very deep pleasures that we discussed earlier. So the Torah, but without the Torah telling us what that is, we wouldn't know what they are. So now the Torah has to come down to tell it to us. Now once we we receive it, now we can do the mitzvah and study the Torah. And when we're doing it, we're actually causing him to descend into the Torah again. So hold on, he was there already because it, here it's a catch-22. It's going circle. It's going around. It's going literally going around and around. But what that means is every time we're doing mitzvahs, we're causing a, we're empowering his emergence. But each time he's emerging, he's emerging even deeper, even more involved, even deeper and higher and higher. And that's how we're generating the engagement and the involvement of Hashem into the creation. So the Torah is coming down, to give koach, to give power and strength, to empower us that through our action, the arousal from below should trigger and cause an arousal of above. Now why is it called oirach Say, uh, he's running towards his column. Why does it say He's running towards Orach, which Orach is referring to a woman because Orach Kenoshim, because the way of a woman is referring to a woman's cycle in which she has a period and so on and so forth. Why do you say that? So now he's explaining. By Rachel it says, by Rachel it says, She also, now the word Orach means a derech. It means a way. Orach is Orchoy Sashem, the ways of God. It's the same like saying Darkei Hashem, the ways. So Oirach and Derech, for the time being, is the same idea, a way. Now, by 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 um, uh, by a man, it also says Derech Gever, the way of a man, there's a pasuk. By a woman, it says Oirach Kenashim, the way of the woman. And, so, and Rachel actually says the same thing. When Lavan, her father-in-law, uh, comes, uh, her father, Lavan, Rachel's father, Suspects that she stole the, his 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 truffin, his magical his avodazars, his his idols, and she and and he was doing an inspection. So she said, "Dad, I'm sorry, I can't." She really had it. She she stuck it into the cushions of the camel, and she said, "Sorry, Dad, that I can't get up for you uh, because I have uh, I have derech nashimli." Basically, she's saying, "I'm my period, and now I'm, I'm I have to." So I'll sh- so what was what, what was so what does that mean? So it's very interesting. He's going to point out to him a phenomenal thing. Rachel says, I'm, I have a period. By Sarah, what does it say? Sarah says, Sarah does not have the period. She's already, she reached the point that she doesn't have. She's past it. So on a simple level, you say, Rachel was young and Sarah was old. But on a much deeper level, we're talking about two different levels of Shekhin. 
What is period? The period is the woman is giving is blood, which is which is which is. Here's the thing. Every month, a woman has the, the ability to ovulate. Ovulate means when she ovulates, she has she creates the potential to have a child. Blood is life. In order to create the child, she will use blood. The blood creates the child. If for whatever reason a pregnancy doesn't happen, like happens most of the time, so now this potential went unused. So now there's life there, excessive life, that doesn't have now a, it doesn't have, it's not going into a child. So what happens with this extra life that is not going into creating a child? This extra life is now goes out of her. Now simply it means it goes out of her. Fine, so why does she become impure? Why is a woman impure by the time of her nida? Because as we discussed many times, during her time when that energy does not go in to create something constructive, the energy flows into the, 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 the unholy. And the clippers receive life from her. Now why, and that's why a woman is impure, because the forces of negativity are then latching on and taking chaos. They're getting blood, they're getting energy. You say, well, why did God do that? To give the answer, she has to give life to them. Because if the woman is the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah has to create the Klippah, has to feed the Klippah too. So the Shekhinah is the amazing thing. The Shekhinah feeds the Klippah through her period. In other words, and that's why the five bloods that are tame by a woman are have to do with the five Gevuros, five powers, which is basically, it's the leftover energy that did not go in to create the primary elements of creation, which is Kedusha and holiness. It's where Klippa receives from the Moisrei HaChayas, from the leftover energies, excessive life. It's like the last crumbs that are left over, you have to get, because there is a reason why the Klippa needs to exist, the unholy needs to exist for a duration of time. She has to provide for everybody. So she feeds the Klippa as well. And that's called... Rachel, and that's why. So that's why Rachel is the one who has the period. Stara doesn't have a period. What is the meaning in that? What does it mean? It means the deeper meaning in that. Because the Shechina has two states of existence. Shechina is the, is the divine attribute of kingship. But it exists on two levels. There is the Shechina while the Shechina is still in Atzilus. When the Shechina is still in the world of emanation, totally attached to her husband, over there there is no Klippa. Because in Atzilus, La Yigra the forces of evil don't exist there. And therefore, they have no access to her. So when she's in Atsilas, that's when she's called Sarah. Sarah means minister over everybody. Sarah is a very powerful name. She's Sarah, she's a Sar, she's a minister over everybody. That's the Shekhinah, when Shekhinah is above the creation, and therefore no one can hack her. She can't be, she's unhackable. She's in a secure place. No, the Kalipas can't get to her. And that's why the, the, the sages say, that's why the verse says, By her, there's no period. There's no, the, the unholy can't get there. Rachel, on the other hand, is also Malchus, also Shechina. But Rachel represents the Shechina when the Shechina comes down to give life. She gets involved in the creation. She descends downward. Because we know the Shechina is Raglel Yaredes Mavis. Her feet go down to the places of death. She goes down to enliven the world, even in the place where the Klippas are. And, and then she's called Rachel, because she's like a sheep. And, why, and, and Rachel means a female sheep. What happens to a female sheep? They shear her wool. A female sheep gets sheared her wool. That means they, they cut her wool off. What does that mean in the Shechina? It means that the Klippas derive energy from her hair. That's one of the reasons why a woman has to cover her hair. 
very, very important where a married woman has to cover it because the klipa wanna, and the, and the Rachel, the sheep has a lot of hair, that's her wool, and they cut it, meaning they, they take her energy through her hair. We discussed a long time why only through the hair they can, but they get something from her. So through her period and through, through her blood and through her hair. And that's why she's called Rachel. So by Rachel, it says, Rachel says, I can't get up for you because Derek Nashanli. I do have a period. Sarah is, she doesn't, because Sarah is beyond, she's in a very safe zone. Rachel is still in a state where, and that's, it's needed for the time being. So here's the thing. When it says that God comes down to his Shekhinah, to empower the Shekhinah and empower the Jewish people to do mitzvahs and to be able to, so where is he coming down to? Not only to the Shekhinah while the Shekhinah is in Atzilus, it's not only very big tzaddikim or unhackable that they do mitzvahs. Every Jew can do a mitzvah. Even Jews who are very much part of this world. The neshamists that are very much in Bria, Yetzir, and Asiya. Where it's, there, is, there is a leakage. There is that idea of, 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 of the Yerach Kenashim. There is the period. Which, but yet, that's, that's showing how awesome it is. That even down here, the Abish the broad brings mitzvahs all the way down, and the bride is always lovable to him. And she can always do a mitzvah and always cause that trick. Sunnis, however, going to that, this is the altar at least. But Tzemach Tzedek is explaining that no, that, 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 that when it says oirach, it's actually referring to a different, well, we'll get to it in a minute. Um, it says by Rachel, Kiderech Noshim Li, Al Shem Sene, she gives chayus. She gives energy from her leftover shefa. That means the shechina is the powerhouse to enliven all of creation. But she has leftover, which means whatever did not go into constructive creation. And the psoilas, which she pushes outward. To give energy and to sustain even the dark forces of the world. Which their entire life source comes from the period, so to speak, of the Shekhinah. From the, from the blood that is not part of our main life stream. The blood that did not go create a, a constructive child becomes the life force for the, for the unholy. It comes from the way of women. When is that? When the Shekhinah enclothes herself in the three lower worlds, Bria, Yetzirah, and Asiya. Bria means the world of creation, and Yetzirah means the world of formation, and Asiya means the, our concrete world, which are three lower levels, lower and lower, which over here, darkness and evil exists, and until Mashiach comes, there is some bit of energy that is given to them. And Kirachal, like we said, and that's when she's called Rachel. Lifnei goizezeh, in front of those who share her, there's a verse that says that the sheep, the female sheep is silent, even though she's not happy. They're cutting her hair. She would rather keep her wool. She's not happy. Nalama, but she's muted. She can't protest. And that's the state. That's why we say the Shekhinah is an exile. Masha'in came b'sara, but by Sarah it says that what? Ksiva Avram b'sara zikainim, that Avram and Sarah aged Age means they, they, they were elevated to a very, very high level. Where? To Atzilus. Zaken comes from the word Zesha Kana Chachma, the one that acquired wisdom. Atzilus is a world dominated by Chachma. Bria is dominated by Bina. 
Yetzirah is dominated by the six emotions, and Asiya is dominated by Malchus. So Zekene means to be in a level of Atzilos, then you're called Zake. The Avram Besara Zekene is referring to Avram and Sarah. They lived in Atzilos. When they lived in the world of Atzilos, they were there, there was no Yenika Sachitayna. So from there, Sarah, that's why it's saying, Bon Bayamim, they came into the holy days, into the holy spheres above. Sarah doesn't have any. Maybe she was once in a place where she was hackable, but now she's in a place beyond the reach of the Klippa. From Zakein and Yomim El Yonim in the higher days, the Klippas can't get over there with Sitra Achra and the Sitra Achra. That's why Sarah doesn't have any more. I guess this can be an inspiration for women that are reaching menopause, that there's a, there's a, it's a spiritual elevation to a place where there is no, no more shaykhs till Yenika Sachitzainim from them. For Oid that is the simple pirush. Also, but he doesn't explain. So, but why is that a quality? It's Lachur not a quality. It's Lachur a negative. He doesn't explain. So, why does the Torah say that the the, the sun is racing out Lodetz Oirech in order to empower her? So, you couldn't find anything else about the woman to just put, pick up on the fact that she's feeding the klipa. Like, why is it saying that? So, again, this is my own interpretation. Is that he's trying to say a chiddush? That the, the, the Torah mitzvah is not only to the Shekhinah when Shekhinah is in a level of Sarah, but even to the Shekhinah when the Shekhinah comes down in Bria, Yetzir, and Asiya, even when the Shekhinah comes down into the lower three worlds, where there is danger. God is risking and he's bringing the ability of mitzvahs down to us, even if sometimes we are hacked. Sometimes we sin. It's very dangerous. We're going to see, he's going to explain it. See, a Jew, because we have access to such high energy, to such high voltage, it's like, who would, you know, you, you don't want to give such energies to someone who's hackable. Right? When someone is in enemy territory, a guy goes into a spy, you know that they, they, they're very careful with what they tell him. Because if he has too much information, and let's say they, 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 they catch him and they put him under duress and torture him, they can get information. So therefore, he only knows what he needs to know. You don't give him like the deepest secrets. Or someone who has the deepest secrets, you don't send out into a place where you keep him in the indoors. You don't put them. So you've got to be very careful as a strategy. So why would God take the deepest mitzvahs and give it to um? That's how much it's important, the Torah and the mitzvahs that we do. That even if, and that's why God put so many guardrails on us. Be careful, don't do this. And that's why the Chachamim are so machmer. They're so, so stringent because to be careful from a hack, because, because a Jew who does learns Torah and does mitzvahs is an enormous target. They want you so much to sin. Because when you're sinning, you're basically, so that's is the way I understand the simple reason why he's emphasizing that Lodetz, that the Torah and mitzvahs are coming down all the way, all the way down to souls why there are in bodies to do these Torah and mitzvahs, even though there is Eirach Kenoshim, even though it's a dangerous place. But now the Tzemach Tzedek says, no, he gives another. He says, he doesn't say he's not arguing with his grandfather, obviously. He's just saying you can also say, this is in parentheses. I looked it up earlier. It says, there's another word, orach. But over there it says, there's a verse that says, I think, something like that. The ways of tzadikim. So the Zohar says, 
Ma bein oirach lederech. Zohar is pointing out, why use, it should have said vederech tzadikim. Why does it say orach tzadikim? As we said, orach is a, means the same thing like derech. Derech means a road, and orach means also a path, a way. But it's, an, it's a less common word. So why does it use orach versus derech? So the Zohar says like this, derech i pesach lekula. Derech is a well-trodden road that everybody can ride on. It's an open freeway. Derech is a freeway. Anybody can go, fine. Ein sham, shamavua behedya. So you look in the Zohar, it's stated explicitly, the oirach, but, but oirach means a toll, a toll road. <laughs> Where not everybody gets onto that road, you got to pay a toll. In other words, you got to be a tzaddik. It's a special path that, you know, they have a, the, yeah, it's like you, you come, you know, there's a special, uh, you know, thing over there, and only if you have a pass to go in, they let you through. Oirach is a way that only tzaddikim have access. And not every, it's not a free-for-all road. tzaddikim levad kaimi, the words the Zohar uses, tzaddikim are the ones that are there, vishalti, and they can kind of rule bahu asar on that place. Ve'en misham yenika lechitzainim klal. It's not a free-for-all. Not everybody can come there. If so, if that's what Oirach means, a way that's very private and not everybody, how come it says Oirach Kenashim, which is referring to Nida, the way of women, which is referring to a... So that's why the Tzemach Tzedek is saying, yeah, usually when it says Oirach plain, it means a protected way. When it says Oirach Kenashim, it's talking about where there is access to the klipa as well. But orach plain is not. So therefore the Tzemach Tzedek says, in our verse, when it says, he's racing like a mighty man, running to orach on the road, it doesn't say orach kenashim. It says, which means a path, but the path that's not hackable. And what's the emphasis? The emphasis, no, it tries to make the opposite emphasis. That when God brings down the Torah and mitzvahs, Hashem wants us to be careful and to make sure that we are in a state where, we're, where, where we are not puritable. We're in a state where we're not, what does that mean? Shu'inyan derech nashim, moisve hashef of apsoilis, derech nashim means leftover, shadoichalachutz, which could chas v'shalem, God forbid, leak out. And according to this, in the verse where it says, it mentions just plain orach, and it doesn't say orach kenashim. Yes, we can say, it should be like the way of the Sefer, the way of tzadikim, that is mentioned in the Zohar. That there shouldn't be a yanika, there shouldn't be a life giving energy. From your mitzvahs. That's very important because we have such energies. Torah and, mitzvah, Torah and mitzvahs are so powerful. So, if, you know, for example, a person that doesn't have mitzvahs and doesn't have Torah, this person has a little trickle of energy. You know, you can't make much of a mess. But a Jew who learns Torah and do mitzvahs, the amount of energy, God forbid, they can give off to the enemy is like terrible. It's, so, therefore, you got to be careful. This is the idea of Mayan Chasun. 
There's a verse of Shirashir where it says, God says about the Jewish people, he says, Mayan chasim, you are a sealed spring. A spring is a place where anybody can come. It's a spring, it's a spring of water. But there are certain times, a spring, they make a lock around it. that You can access the spring, like by Yaakov and the, they had this, the, the well and they had a big stone on it. So no, you couldn't just come and because they didn't want anybody to pollute the water or anybody without. So they kept the stone protected. So it's a spring. So the Zohar says, Mayon Chasum, a spring that is sealed. And that is important that a person needs to have a seal on that. And we'll see what this means in our own lives. It's very important. Well, beer in is that. What's the explanation of this? We said earlier, the groom is referring to the written Torah. Yasas Kigibar that is emerging out from its unknowable place and it's merging out. Lord, it's Where is it going? It's coming to a more worldly place. It's coming into Torah Shabbat. The concepts of Torah Shabbat, of the written Torah, are being translated into the oral Torah, where they are becoming far more accessible to humans and to people, right? You can understand it. It's going to the Kal. Now we learned an amazing thing in the famous Mimer, Inyan, where it says, There's there's a Gemara that says, if someone merits, the Torah becomes a medicine of life. If God forbid someone does not, is not Zacha, if a person is not merit, the Torah becomes the opposite. So here's the thing. It's a very strange Talmud. Talmud is trying to say how careful you have to learn. You have to learn the Torah in the right way. If you learn Torah properly, it becomes your life-giving thing. If you learn Torah inappropriately, so it's not like you don't gain from the Torah. The opposite. The Torah itself can become your death, God forbid, your death uh, ticket. So Torah is either it's it's godly. So over there it is explained. If Torah, Torah is always holy, it's God's Torah, why can it be bad? The answer is like this. If a person is a God-fearing person, studies Torah and does mitzvahs, so you're channeling these incredible godly energies. As long as you're going to use it for what? In your holy place. To make this world godly. But if you learn a lot of Torah, you do a lot of mitzvahs, you're drawing all this energy, and then you're not careful. And God forbid you open yourself up to sins and to all kinds of negative things. So what happens is the Klippas get in. And they want to get, here's a very interesting thing. The sages say, a fascinating thing. There's a general rule that says anybody that's greater than someone else, the greater one is, you have a bigger Yetzirah, you have a bigger inclination. You have a bigger evil inclination. You would think the more you grow, you're less inclination. No, it says the people, the bigger rabbis, they have the biggest Yetzirah. Because, so simply it's because it always has to be balanced. You know, you got this, you're good. But there's a much deeper reason. The sages say something else, that the Yetzirah leaves, leaves the Gentiles alone, doesn't even bother them. He puts all this effort to get a Judas in. All the effort. And, the, and, and, it, and then, then the Gemara says, uh, if you're a Torah student, you get more Yetzirah than anybody else, more evil inclination. And it's simple, it's a simple thing, you know? If your person has a, a little, a little, a little uh, small little bank account, but hardly any funds over there, no one is really interested in getting in. 
But when we're talking about, you know, Uncle Sam, you know, with the billions and that, or people that at this day have to put up really, really good protectors on their accounts and other things because hackers are always looking to hack. You want to hack somewhere that's juicy, you're not interested in hacking just like that. So that's the concept that we're saying over here. Zacha, if a person is careful, it's a Samachai, the Torah is, but if God forbid it becomes you're feeding the forces of darkness and they themselves can kill a person with the very energy they stole from the person. Very dangerous. So when we learn Torah, we do mitzvahs, you're playing with fire. You've got to be very careful. Who wasn't Zohar? So there were two people in the times of King David, of David they were his teachers actually, but they were not spiritually refined. They knew a lot of Torah. They were geniuses in Torah. And what is it? And then the Torah itself, you know, the, the Torah itself ended up being a a a a, a samar amavas for them. And what does that mean? The oirach kenoshim. That really means. What does that mean? That when you're learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, how do you keep the energy in holiness? Keep your energy in holiness by not opening oneself. I spoke earlier about about sinning, even if you don't sin. A person who studies Torah and does a lot of mitzvahs afterwards becomes very gluttonous and very materialistic and very. So then you're taking all this extra energy and you're putting it into unholy pursuits, and that's where the energy is leaking. And that's called that's called having a period where the energy, the blood of holiness, the energy of kedusha is going outside of holiness. It's but it shouldn't be that way. You have to make a chasima. Chasima means you have to put a seal. To be the, the, the those who are limud Hashem, which is a protected type of learning Torah. That's why it says that you're supposed to make a chasima, the sages say. By baruch. Baruch means at the end of a blessing, we, we conclude the blessing by, by saying baruch. Certain blessings in Long, mainly long blessings. There are some blessings that are very short. It's a short blessing. Then there are long blessings, let's say, it's a long blessing. The blessing we say after we eat a cookie, any any uh, piece of cake or whatever. So you say a special blessing. So you start with Baruch and you conclude with Baruch. Baruch HaTashem, right? So you're saying Baruch again. But the sages say whenever you do a baruch at the end, they say you use an interesting term. They say chayseim bebaruch. You sign off. Chayseim means simply means you conclude. A deeper meaning. Baruch means a flow. You're drawing energy. At the end, end, end of the blessing, which means when you're bringing the blessing down, 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 lower and lower and lower into the territory of the unholy, which are over here, got to be careful because you got to put a firewall. Got to protect. Can't leave it open. Can't leave your 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 computer with all with all the accesses of your banks and whatever just like that open. You got to close it. Got to put so that it's shut. Can't so that they, whoever is, shouldn't be getting there shouldn't get there. That's the idea of chaysim b'bar. V'zau l'arutz oirach chenaz v'oirach tzadikim. Now, that means, now we say, who are these tzaddikim? Uh, meaning, what, what does that mean? All Jews. That means that God 
gave us the Torah in the way. You know, Hashem put up watches that we shouldn't leak. That's it. Upidish, and now what is the meaning of the words Yasis Kegibar? That the Torah is emerging and it's rejoicing. Yasis, it's full of joy when it's going towards the Kala, it's going towards her. Because remember, she is the one who will trigger the whole thing. She will intensify the whole thing. When it says Yasis, Yasis comes from the word Yesh, Yesh. Two times Yesh. Now Yesh which is Yud Yesh, which is the word Yin Yud Shin, is Gematria 310. The sages say that when any, all, every tzaddik Hashem is going to give him 310 words, worlds. Yes. For reward. But it says over here, Yesh, Yesh. Why? Because two times 310, 310 and another 310 is 620. 620 is Gematria Kesser. That's the source. That's where all the Torah mitzvahs come from, from the infinite light. That's the Keter. It's the infinite 620 mitzvahs. That's really because they're rooted in the Orient Sof. Keter is the crown. The innermost of the infinite. The Ain Sof, Ain Sof. And that's three. But it's emer- and now it's emerging from Keser. And the Amshachas Tarach Amude Or. We know the mitzvahs are called 620 pillars that come from the highest, highest supreme place, it's a pillar of energy that comes down. It's not just a pillar of energy. It's a pillar of God himself. Hashem's limbs, that's what we're saying. They're descending from Keser all the way down here. Which they are the root of the 613 commandments, but that's 613 and that's 620. You add seven rabbinic mitzvahs. Together, now this also shows up the 620 number is not only in the mitzvot, 620 mitzvahs, but also in the Ten Commandments. Because there are 620 letters in the Ten Commandments. You count from Anochi, 620. Because the, the Torah comes from, uh, from, from, from the Keter of God, from the crown. Tarach Where are they running to? Shehizgalusam betorah shabopeh. In Torah Shabbat in the written Torah, you just have an, a vague idea what God wants. There's no revelation of it. You don't have it clear. You don't have a clear picture. But when you study, tonight is the Rambam's yard site. When you study the Rambam, the book of Mishnah Torah, with all the individual details and laws and laws and laws, and you formulate it, then you have a full expression of God's, of, of Hashem's will. The Alter Rebbe has a, has a letter in the back of Tanya, and it starts with the word Eishes Chayel, the woman of valor, Ateres Baal is the crown of the husband. He's basically explaining how Dafke in Torah Shabbat, which is called Eisha, Isha, Eishes Chayel, the woman, that's the crown of the husband, because that reveals the Keter of the Torah. Torah Shabbat doesn't reveal the Keter. The Keser is the, is the will. You don't know the will of Torah. When you're running, you just know a little bit, kind of. Hashem likes this. He likes that. We don't have a picture. The crown is fully exposed only when it goes down to the woman. When it goes down into Torah Shabbat, that's when it rises up to be the crown of the Now, watch this, how this mimer all comes together in just an amazing way. Once we understand how we're the ones responsible to bring God out from a hidden 
unexpressed, unknown, unspecified state. And our job is to bring him into manifestation. Since this an entire order of evolving energy, we're the ones who bring him out into the state. They're the ones who draw down Chayos, the energy of and the infinite light plus the they're the ones who trigger. That's the romance of all of creation. They cause the juice to flow in all the worlds, from the beginning of all levels. Through our observance and study of Torah and the doing of mitzvahs. That he should enclose himself, the infinite one. That he should desire kindness. Without us triggering the kindness, he has no mood of being kind. We have to create within him the desire to be kind. And that the world should be built on the, with this chesed. This energy and this ability was given to Israel. It's interesting that he uses the word segol over here. His cherished nation, which you can say earlier, segol also means the triple, because we, the way we bring Hashem down is through these three channels, like the segol. Which is in the case, simply to translate it means those who serve idols. But the general meaning it means referring to um, um, uh, the Gentile in general. They were not given this ability to be able to trigger this energy, this flow. Can draw forth. Like they'll be beneficiaries of it once Mashiach comes, but they can't trigger it. They don't have the ability to do so. That's why we're going back to the beginning of the discourse. The the ensemble of souls. Knesset Yisrael means the root of all souls, which is the source of all of Israel, all souls. God refers to them as reyasi. My simply means my love, but deeper than uh, deeper it means my provider. You provide me. You feed me. Reyasi comes from like a roel, like a shepherd who feeds his flock. God is saying, you feed me. Parnasasi, you bring me parnasa. You bring me livelihood. How does that work? Very simple. When God is saying, you're bringing me parnasa, it's not referring to the orient self. It's referring to Hashem as Hashem is manifesting as the creator of the creation. As HaKadosh Baruch as the, the, the man, the, the cosmic man who's taking care of the creation, which is his woman, which is, but he's the man. But God is saying, you got to make me the man. you got to continuously draw me from being above a man into being a man. That's why you're called, you're called my, 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 my one who nurtures me. Why? Because what, why are we calling it? Parnas particularly means you feed me. Why is it called feeding? Because the same process of food. In a small way, we all have this. Our soul is also an abstract spiritual energy. And then in order for our soul to vest itself in a body... Our soul, when God sends the soul into the body, God basically on its own, the soul hovers at the very tippy top of the body, in the nose, in the brain. That's it. And the soul is constantly in escape mode. So something has to be done to keep the soul anchored and get the soul to like vest itself and to energize and engage in all the powers. And that's food. That's why if you don't eat a few days, you get very weak. And you start seeing that your sen- your senses don't work. You can't see well. You're, you start blurring. Everything becomes why? Because the soul is not being pulled down. 
The soul, food, for whatever reason that is, food strengthens the mind, strengthens the blood, and helps the soul pull the soul down continuously in the body. And food I have to eat all the time. Can't say I ate once in my life, I'm done. It's a continuous thing. So God has the same situation. He's, there's the cosmic level. There is the infinite. The God himself hitched, hitched himself up to the creation just a tiny little bit. Then he said, it's the rest is up to you. You have to feed me. You have to feed the cosmic food. And Torah mitzvah is considered the food. And that's what pulls God continuously down into the world. That's why Hashem says, You are being me. You're bringing me in. As he explains it over here quickly. Just like food. That feeds a person. This is what draws down the life of the soul. That's really first only in the brain. And it brings it down to all the limbs. Because the life force of a person is in his brain. And from the brain, it's the brain that draws the energy down to all the limbs, but you need however, if a person doesn't eat for a few days, the brain becomes weak. And the soul that's in the person's brain doesn't have the ability to attach itself and bond itself with the body, to enliven the limbs. And through this weakening, God forbid, it causes a change in one's senses. That means you can't see clearly, and things become blurry, and everything starts becoming very distorted, and God forbid it can lead to a person's complete death. And food is what strengthens the power of the soul. And connect the soul to the body, to draw down from their life. So, by way of analogy, the same is God says, You're my feeder, you're my provider, because they're the ones who draw down life and the and the infinite, the infinite light. Blessed is he. From the transcendence of the soviv, of the when Hashem is above all worlds, higher than the world. To draw him down into the body, for him to fulfill all worlds, and that the world should be built with kindness. That means he should structure himself as a kind being. It's in order that it should be, as we said earlier, that we, the shechina, we, the, the wife, we, our words, which is the shechina, mitzav bashamayim. Cause him to stay being Shamayim. That I sh- we're the Oretz. We cause him to lower himself down into the heaven. That we should draw um, there should be an arousal from above. From above the whole progression of the world, he should descend into the world. As we said earlier. Now we'll understand this awesome teaching. Why God compares us in this particular matter, he says, you, my provider, you are compared to the horses of the chariots of Paro, the female horses in the chariots of Paro. What in the world does it have to do with the horses in the chariots of Paro? So now he explains. I compared you to the horses. my bride. You as my provider, you are compared to the Horses in the chariots of power. The Indian idea is as follows. Just like by way of analogy. 
the horse that was in the chariots of Pharaoh, of Paro Hagashmi, of the physical Paro, because he was a mighty king, these horses were what? Adorned. They were dressed up in the most beautiful, beautiful ornaments. The Egyptian horses were like, wow. They literally decorated them. Like they make to horses of ministers, and kings, when they go out on a parade. Not a, it's not a, it's not just a plain horse. It's a horse with with everything, with gold bells, and everything is on it. And it's or when they are either when they're riding directly on it, when the king or the ministers are riding on the horses, or when the when the horses are pulling the the chariot, the wagons of the king. Now here's the thing. The horse remains a horse. The horse has no idea. The horse doesn't have an opinion and a say, and it goes to the jewelry store to try to pick out like what is really going to be pretty and what's really going to be nice. The horse is interested in hay. He has no idea what he's carrying because it's way beyond his comprehension what these ornaments are. More than that, he doesn't even get really pleasure in it. Someone's told me a horse guy that horses know that they're, you know, that honor is being given to them. They have a certain pride, but they don't really comprehend and have an understanding of what is being put on them. The lawyers are Markovan. They don't understand the chariot that they're pulling. They don't even know who they're carrying. A horse doesn't have to have, you know, uh, 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 an interview a couple of times with his rider until he really, really understands and appreciates the truth. Yeah, there is a strong connection between horse and rider. We do know that horses feel very much their rider, but not that they have a deep comprehension and understanding of who the rider is. If it's an ordinary person or if it's a great minister or a billionaire or whatever, these information the horse doesn't have and the horse doesn't have any understanding of the other. Now, more than that, it's even though the horse is the one that's adorned with these things, it's not about the horse. The horse becomes an extension of the king or the minister. In other words, the horse being um, um, decorated and the horse being, you know, full with jewelry, it's not ornaments of the horse. It's ornaments of the king expressed that in that the king's horse has ornaments. Uh, it's for the sake of the rider. When the king needs to ride, then they, they, then they, then they dress up the horse. The nice, if the horse starts thinking that this is about him, <laughs> Get him out of there. And you put him in the chariot. This is nice to him. This fits exactly with the Monday class. In the Monday class, I was talking about the fact that the, that, that instead of Jew being considered a Hashem referring to Jews as a little tiny child, uh, my firstborn child, which means even growth. The, but we said even then you have to be a little child where, where, where your desire to be, make something out of yourself, to become beautiful and smart and wise and intelligent it's because you're a holy soul and you're representing God, not because of you. This is the same theme he's explaining over here. The, the, the fact that we are, have these amazing ornaments, it's not about us. It's through us, Hashem's, Hashem's beauty and splendor is coming out. And this is his pleasure. He gets the light through the horse. And so by way of analogy, by God it says that God also rides on horses. It's a, it's a verse in Zechariah. It says, when you're riding on your horses. 
there is a chariot which is up, up made up of horses. Black horses, white horses. It says that um, when Zechariah, Zechariah saw the saw the saw God's chariot, he depicted it with black and white horses. But when Yeshayah, um, Yeshayo, um, um, and and Yecheskel, Ezekiel, and and uh, and uh, what do you say, Isaiah? When they saw the chariot, they described a different chariot. They saw it with lions and the chariot made up of the wild beasts in the face of the lion. The Hainu. And what is that? So we had a whole mimer we learned two weeks ago. Remember, we learned about it, that during the time of the Beis Migdash, the chariot was lions and and oxen. During the time of the, of the exile, it's horses. So what's the idea? But the same idea that he mentioned there, he's mentioning it over here. Lions and oxes represent a more sophisticated type of a chariot where the animals have some kind of a relationship, especially in heaven. The lion and the ox represent very high levels of angels. Michael, Gabriel, they have some kind of an understanding and appreciation of who they're, who they're carrying, who, is, who they're riding. with. Horses represent the idea that an, a simple, simple chariot. The simple chariots are the, even though they're beautiful animals, but they're not, the, they don't have the sophistication. And in that sense, meaning they have no clue of who they're riding and what's going on, but they're just being used. Not used, they're being an instrument to, for the kings. These spiritual beings have some understanding of who they're, who's being drawn through them and with them. The And that's why they become also, when, when God is using the, when God is using the 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 lion and the and the and the ox in his chariot, they become part of the experience. They too delight in the experience. So the experience of the ride is not only the experience for the rider, it's also the experience for the for the for the animal that's for the chariot, for the one that's carried. It's a shared experience. Obviously, the main point of is the rider, but there's some pleasure and experience to the that's what he's saying. The angels above, when they're carrying the divine, they go out in ecstasy and bliss. That's if he's using the... But sometimes God doesn't want the, 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 the chariot to be in... The experience he wants should be totally his and not theirs. But horses, they're the loyal, loyal foot soldiers. It, it's not that they're not in the experience at all. They're just, they're just facilitating what's happening over here without any personal personal um, uh, uh, gain from this thing. They're, they're, they're happy. They're going to get their, 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 their straw in the end. They get their food. Hebchenes Oisius is referring to a lower level of chariot, which is considered letters. Where there is no, letters have no intellect. It's not like emotions. Emotions have no. What they have is that just like when a person rides a horse, the horse is totally nullified to the rider, surrendered. It has no, you know, it moves exactly with the rider. Every, if you know how to ride a horse, the tiniest little movement you make, the horse goes to the right, to the left, and so on and so forth. So too, it's a type of chariot where the chariot is completely surrendered to the rider. And uh, so he doesn't have that he should have. 
In other words, that the horse should get pleasure from the fact that the king is, 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 is has the light? No. The chariot doesn't at all grasp that at all. And that's what God says to us. You are the biggest knackers in all of creation. You are the movers and the shakers of all of existence. You are doing things, you're touching mitzvahs that you have are such unbelievable diamonds and jewels. We're, we're talking about things that are triggering all of creation. You are getting God involved in existence. You are creating Hashem's entire structure. You know what powerful that is? These are the highest, deepest ornaments. And as we spoke earlier, these are the inner, inner, inner nuances of God's infinite pleasure. And you're the ones adorning yourself because you're putting on the tefillin. You're putting on the, you're doing the mitzvah. You're enclosing yourself in the mitzvah. But you're, Hashem says, it's so cute what you're doing. You're like the horses in the chariot of power because you have zero clue what you're doing. But you know what? It doesn't make a difference because that's why, that's the way I like it, Hashem said. And, and through you and with you, all this amazing stuff is happening. Uh, you as my which means you as the one who is giving me livelihood you're, you're generating such a high thing when you are speaking you're speaking me into existence God is saying it's crazy when we speak we cause him to speak whatever as we discussed earlier so you are also you're like a horse you have no hasaga, no grasp in the infinite light. is an honor. That you should exhilarate in his exhilaration. The delight that he has within himself. Because he alone is the source of life and the source of pleasure, and you have no clue and no access to that pleasure. Our pleasure is a much lower pleasure. Our pleasure is the pleasure of Olam Haba. Olam Haba, which is the world to come, is a little crumb of pleasure. It's just a little tiny you. That's not that. There's the pleasure of the creations. That's your playground. But then God says that what you're doing all your life is my playground. It's mine a lot. You have no clue. But you know what? And all these things you're doing, it's you are lost. You're like the horses who are lost for the lost in the chariot. And that's what's so beautiful about it. So when we realize this, we realize that the mitzvahs are not about us. The mitzvahs are completely, utterly a beautification of God through us and with us. Yeah, they're clothing, they're ornaments. And Olam Abba, which is the pleasure of the souls, that's like the horse going to the stable later and getting hay. <laughs> Literally. The horse gets hay, and the horse is having delicious. The horse, when he gets to it, he tells his friend, there's such delicious hay. Extra delicious, because they put in a little bit of something there. You know, they hate, you know, they feel the horses, the king's horses, they give him a little extra, extra something. Yeah, but you realize what you were doing. You were carrying the king. You were wearing the jewels and all that, but he does not appreciate that. That doesn't mean anything to him. The horse wants to hate. So we're exactly, whenever people speak about Olam Haba and all of that, that's that's the little hate. That's why Hasidus took away all the emphasis of Olam Haba and said, you know, even though you're a horse, appreciate the fact that you're the horse carrying the Torah and Mitzvah itself. That's, that's infinitely beyond because it's God's pleasure, not your pleasure. The reason, the main, 
And but that's that's the whole point of it. The horse doesn't have to know what he's doing in order to beautify the king, to parade the king. God says you don't have to know the the innards of the mitzvahs. The reason it's having power is because the main arousal of of above. They are what's making you beautiful. You have no idea what they are. I'm just telling you. They're coming from the supernal pleasure. When the soul is bottled from this pleasure, I understand exactly what that line means because the soul doesn't have... I, I think it's more like the soul is being bottled. It would make more sense to me if it would say. I don't know. But again, I'm like the horse trying to learn the mimer also. So... Uh, the mimer is the Alter Rebbe's mimer. It's infinitely beyond my understanding. So I can't try to, to play with... If I would put my own two cents over here, I think the word should have been nefesh through the bitl of the nefesh to the onik, to this pleasure. Because you, you don't have bitl me onik from the pleasure because you don't have the pleasure. Because you don't we don't feel the pleasure in it because we don't know the pleasure. So I'm not exactly sure what he means. Bitl nefesh the neshama could trigger and can draw down this entire, this, this amazing cosmic effect. But this pleasure, it's outside of the realm of any type of conceivable understanding and appreciation and experience. It is not grasped by anybody. Not by the supernal lions, and not by the supernal oxen, and not by the and not by the highest levels. It's not grasp. It's unknowable. The lace machshavat visit klal, and this and no thought can grasp it at all. And the nullification of the soul. Here he says, "Taka those words, to this pleasure, who sus is literally like the horse." That is in the chariots of Paro. Even though the horse is so obedient, he doesn't take part in the experience of it because he doesn't know what that is. It's like the, the soul, the, the horse is doing its thing, but to the delight and the um, and the pleasure of the rider. The horse, however, is very loyal to carry that, even though it has no no understanding. The inner margesha shum tainig vispilus klal doesn't feel any pleasure, doesn't have any excitement. The kadav lezeh isabim avoysha arin. So close to this idea, he says, I find it in Arizal. This concept. Vezelo shaynoi, and Arizal says like this: Ki eluhem tachshitin. These are the special tachshitin of jewelry that Hashem sends to His kala which are the mitzvahs, and he explains where they're coming from, Ketar, I looked it up in the Arizal over here. Lifnei achar ulefanov helem achar helem. Now, I have, I, I racked my brain to try to figure out these words. Lifnei achar ulefanov helem achar helem. Hechar achar helem, I understand. Conceal, it's coming from a place of concealment after concealment. It is so high. Lifnei achar ulefanov, I have no idea what that means. Um, but it's okay that we don't know because he's basically talking about something that's unknowable. So what does that mean? Lift This concept that our performance of mitzvahs is utterly for God's sake. It's not like for your experience. It's for God's experience. Manus Friedman always says, has this beautiful line. 
he says, like someone he wants to discuss with someone, and this person said, uh, says to them, you know, I, I don't need it. I don't need Shabbos. I don't need, you know, I don't need this. I don't need Shabbos. I don't need. So he says, never about I need. God needs, not you need. <laughs> and you need. It, it was never about your need. It's about the Eberster. This mimer is so clear, this Indian. The Alter Rebbe is saying it over here. So the Gemara actually says, Amar Rabbi Yehuda bar Simen b'shem Rabbi Levi. Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Simon the B'Shem Reb Levi, the name of Levi, one of the hardest working animals, one of the hardest working creatures, not an animal, but a creature, are bees. Bees work and work and work and work. See, ants also work. I was When I was in, uh, in, in, in Costa Rica a while ago, uh, a couple of months ago, I was watching an army of ants it was so beautiful. Every day from five o'clock in the morning, they're marching and they're carrying. That well, you see them all. They're carrying leaves, hundreds. It's like it's like a it's like a, a sea of leaves that are walking, and beneath it, there's hundreds of thousands of ants that will walk. And there are guys coming back and going forward, but the ants use them for themselves. They build their own their food. Their I don't know what they use. The bees work and work and work and work and make honey and honey and honey and honey comes. And for who are they doing it? For the for for the owner of the beehive. Everything they're doing, they're not getting any benefit. They work or they pollinate and they're going. It's all for the ones who take on. So the sages say, and that's why the Jewish people are compared to the bees. Everything that we're doing, it's not it's not for them, for their own honey, for their own sweetness. It's the gift that they're giving. <laughs> As much as the mitzvahs and the good deeds, and they are gathering this all with our Father in heaven. For whom move on? And this medrash is understood based on what we just explained there. It's the same idea like the horse who's riding with his with the ornaments. And it's never been about the horse. It's about the beautification of the king. All right, everyone, with that, we conclude this phenomenal discourse of of, of the Susasi Berich Vipare, uh, mimer number two. There's another mimer, the Susasi, that we once learned in Parshas Bishalach, and in, not next week, but probably the week afterwards, we will start learning the beer on that mimer, the third the Susasi, that's in Parshas Bishalach. It's the only mimer that's left over here in Torah, or at least until Purim, that I didn't teach yet. So we're going to finish that. Okay, everyone be well.